kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Bistinski speaking. You're listening to episode 28 of Love That Album. Uh, thanks very much for downloading. Glad you could join us. And I'm doing something a little bit different for this episode. Out, We're not going to focus on a particular album. Circumstances have um, dictated that I basically do something different. We were going to have a uh, chat. I was going to have a chat with uh, VK Lin of the uh, List Music Podcast, but she's not feeling well, so um, I'm deferring that recording uh, for another couple of weeks. But to help us out, to uh, give some conversation that you music lovers out there will be enthralled and thrilled by, I have I am joined by not one, but by two people from one of a thousand kilometres up the road from me. And one, I don't know, what would it be? Maybe 10,000 kilometres up the road from me. I'm, so I'm talking about John Sterrett in Sydney. And for the first time live on the show, Mr. Eric Reanimator in Ann Arbor. Good evening or good morning, gentlemen. Glad to good, be here. Good evening, Morris. And nice, nice to meet you, Eric. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so, um, yes, basically the format, we've just decided, you know, as I'm calling this episode, Shooting the Shit. Um, now, I sort of had one of those unintendedly in episode two, uh, where the format was going to be, I was going to talk with um, uh, John and my good friend Jeff Smith about uh, the the John Hyatt album uh, uh, Bring the Family and um, well basically because of my own ineptitude because I was still learning about (laughs) how to record podcasts I ended up losing the whole part of the podcast where we're talking about John Hyatt but I decided to upload the, the portion of the show where we were just chatting about music and whatever it was else that we were chatting, but this is the first time that I'm recording an episode where the purpose is nothing but to shoot the shit. So, um, let, gentlemen, let's just talk music. We'll start off with um, what you guys have been listening to. Maybe we just sort of talk, like, I don't know how many albums you want to talk about. We might go in around one album each and then just keep going around until we run out. Sounds good to me. All right. Eric, you, you're our international guest. Give it, give it a start. What have you been listening to? Okay. Well, I, actually, I just got the Bo Diddley album, The Black Gladiator, which was mentioned on the show a while back. All oh, right, so you've been speaking to Monday, Justin. Well, I, you know, I'm a big Bo Diddley fan. I love some Bo Diddley. Uh, and this arrived last night, so I've only listened to it once. Yep. So far, so good. Mm. Uh, it, it's, you know, a lot of those 50s, early 60s artists found that niche and just mined it for the rest of their career. Bo Diddley is one of those guys that experimented, and then eventually, towards the end of his life, he was doing a lot of blues stuff. I unfortunately did not get to see him live before he passed, but my brother did. Okay. Uh, my brother saw him play a state festival a couple, about a year and a half before he died, and he mostly played blues stuff. Mm. But this is kind of a funky blues psychedelic album, and I think it fits in with his uh, style and his history 
with definitely having what then would have been kind of a modern experimental edge. Mm. So good on you to Justin for uh, talking about this one because I'm so glad I checked it out. I know he is a, he is a big fan of that. He, um, he has sent me a, a copy of that. I have yet to listen okay. to it. But, um, uh, yeah, look, I, I'm, I, I, can, I can understand that. I guess that's something that a lot of artists... Uh, a lot of uh, blues artists uh, or rock and roll artists, you know, the 50s or earlier, um, I guess they decided to do things in the late 60s or early 70s to make them, I guess, seem more relevant, more pertinent to what else was going on at the time. I mean, an album that I've always wanted to listen to, but I know more by reputation than having actually listened to it is Muddy Waters' Electric Mud. Um, okay. I, I imagine he was doing a, a similar sort of thing to what Bo Diddley was doing, was he? Or actually, just... I think the uh, the sticker that came on this album actually mentions that album along with the okay. Holland Wolf album. Okay. So I, I think also it's a matter of, and this is something that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later on, hopefully, is uh, when in, when you look at an artist's history in total, and you go back and you look at some of those those uh, side jaunts and experiments, and the idea of uh, you know, maybe it didn't work at the time, maybe it was ahead of the time, but when you look at an artist's life in total, that you can start seeing the, the pattern, the map of where they were going or what they tried. And I think that this is an interesting uh, stopping along point. And I also think that, you know, the early days of rock and roll, these were young guys who were still learning what they were doing, figuring out who they were as musicians. And obviously, as you know, they spend 10 years on the road, you're going to become more proficient, you're going to be exposed to new ideas. And you're going to play with them, and I think that's why a lot of early rock and roll guys, or, you know, punk rock guys, did eventually go on to do more challenging music or more complex music or more mature music because they were refining their art as they went along. Yes, I guess learning their chops. Yeah, and I think it's funny too that um, uh, I think the history of music's littered with artists that take that you know, artistic left turn and it's often, you know, uh, derided at the time and then probably what you're, what Eric was saying there, you look back, you know, a bit of revisionist history and, you know, God forbid, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch, but people will say, oh, well, Dylan's self-portrait wasn't that bad, you know, when at the time, you know, um, people were, you know, it was an outcry. I think, though, that with, um, it, it was different times. I mean, you know, can you imagine any artist today coming out and doing a similar thing to what uh, Dylan did at, say, you know, Newport Folk Festival and being booed just for doing something as going as electric. You know, nowadays mm. we'd applaud it. And back then it was seen as shocking. So maybe we have become revisionist or... or but I, I guess we can't really understand the mentality of what people were thinking, what was so shocking, but... Mm. I, th I think there's a, there's a little bit of, of both points of view going on because now we have that history where people are saying, oh, you know, this is uh, this is like the birds and sweetheart of the rodeo. They're just trying something different. And, you know, yeah. in 10 years, we're going to think it's great. And then some people are out there saying, hey, I want that record again. Mm. Mm. Yep, yep. I think that's maybe the... at the time they were saying, we want what came before it again. Yeah. Yeah, well, the other thing I would say about those early rock and roll artists is the early rock and roll that was a singles medium that was you know 45 rpm record this jockey flipped over if they were going to play the b-side and once you get into the, the late 60s and 70s the focus is on the album so a lot of these artists had to reinvent their concept of how they made music mm -hmm. uh, eric how did how did bo diddley fare like um you know i guess 
Um, most of the forefathers of rock and roll, you know, not not this is not a unilateral, but you know, they're all they were ripped off. They signed ba bad deals. They didn't keep control of their own music or their own copyright. I, I, I don't know enough about Bo. Did did he like? Did he have his act together, or did he did he die penniless? He, as far as I know, he did not die penniless. I, I don't know how it went as far as his his holding his copyrights. I do know that he was uh, he's one of those those artists that gets rediscovered by each generation. He toured yeah. famously with The Clash in the early eighties, yeah. and that by the time my brother saw him playing the state fair, what basically, you know, he was doing blues stuff. So I, you know, I remember when he when he passed, they, they mentioned that you know he was living comfortably in Florida. So. I'm sure he wasn't a millionaire, and he wasn't, mm, mm. you know, he wasn't living living large at that point in time. But it sounds like he wasn't penniless either. So he seemed to, you know, he seemed, from what I have read and heard, to be somebody who had his act together enough to push to have things done his way mm. and to follow his vision. So I'm not sure about the, the business end of things. Yeah, I mean, not. He, it doesn't sound like he was necessarily a Chuck Berry, you know. As legend has it, going from town to town with a suitcase, a revolver, and you know, play for five thousand. <laughs> no, play for, no. for five thousand dollars anywhere as long as he had a pickup band that would um, play songs. No, so, I, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, I, I, I'm fascinated with the arc of you know mature artists, you know, like Bo, and you know those bit younger. I guess there's not many older that can just they can you know sort of live their life out with. Yeah, not not just financial dignity, but artistic dignity. They can still stay relevant and try different things, and and it can be you know somewhat commercially successful. Yeah, it, it's you know I I have a fascination with people that are able to balance the the, the business end and the artistic end and their yeah. life end of things. Yeah, because normally it it, 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 it isn't that way, is it? I mean, it's, I think particularly that that era of the forefathers of rock and roll for want of a better term for them most of it most of it ended bad you know like ray charles i think was the exception he was very perceptive he fought very hard and was very um you know shrewd businessman yeah uh, but but many others um i guess they were exploited uh, and you know, almost um and allowed to be exploited yeah and I, I think that that we're seeing that repeat over and over and over as as you go through Time. I'm sure that uh, you know we can talk about the early '50s and rockabilly guys, and we can talk about the '60s garage bands. Mm. We can talk about punk and new wave. We can talk about the metal guys. We can even talk about the grunge bands, and then the following them, the boy bands, and probably see that process repeated, where some people have their act together and they put their money in the bank and they do okay, mm. and they have a vision of where they're going to go, and others who get ground up by the machine. Yeah. Excellent. One thing that we've—I don't know about how common this is in the states, but um, quite often, I mean, it's very sad of the circumstances. But we often see um, a lot of artists put on benefit shows for uh, musicians who who um, have to undergo some sort of uh, operation or, or something bad yeah. has gone wrong in their life. And you know, unlike you know your your. Uh, office worker or something like that they don't have a superannuation plan but it's nice to see that the musicians look after each other but I, I guess because there's no formal thing that you know, for lack of a better term uh, uh, a day shift worker 
Like mm. you have to look after their future. They don't have yeah. that. So th- there's obviously that generosity of spirit. But yeah, it goes to show that you know, they, they, you know, they might live for the moment and you know, they're living for the passion of what they do rather than um, sort of uh, being able to think for the rainy day. Well, I think a great example is uh, Ronnie Lane, you know, and and his illness, and you know, you know how much money he didn't have, and and I think um, it's surprising, you know, Rod Stewart probably doesn't have a great reputation post his first four solo albums, but I think he was very um, good to Ronnie Lane, and I think Pete Townsend to a certain degree helped out, but you know, it's a talent, you know, someone that's a re- you know reasonably significant figure in the history of rock and roll, and they're you know penniless for the last 20 or 25 years of their life. Well, we, we do have that, that situation here in the States. And actually, when I got up this morning and the uh, the radio turned on, they were talking about um, a musician in uh, New Orleans and how he dealt with the storm and uh, how his, uh, you know, his house was ruined and how he wasn't ready. And, and that's a lot of what the show Treme is talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely brilliant. I forgot about that, yeah. And then more locally, uh, Ron Ashton of the Stooges, they famously had a big benefit for him. I, I think he was okay financially, and it was more to remember him, but you definitely see those things going on. Mm. Oh, well, it's good to know that at least um, you know, the musicians are looking after their own. Too. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, uh, locally we have a guy, um, Scott Morgan, who was in the band The Rationals, who uh, was offered the singing, the singer slot in Earth, Wind, and Fire in the '70s, and turned it down? Oh, really? So, yeah, blue-eyed soul singer who uh, kind of got re- once again got rediscovered in the '80s, and then at the end of the '90s, who uh, has some health problems, and they've been having benefits for him locally. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's see. Okay, so John, you want to go into an album that you? Yeah, look, uh, I, I, I guess I'll just mention a couple. Um, I'll, I'll get back more to this later if the conversation heads this way, but just came back from a um, family holiday in Ireland uh, visiting my wife's mother and sisters. And I thought, well, look, you know, I'm over in Ireland I, and, and, and weight, weight was always a problem as far as you know, bringing stuff back in suitcases. So I didn't, I didn't really go berserk and buy a lot of CDs. And I said, look, I won't buy CDs over there that I, that I know I can get here. So. I predominantly looked around the shops and um, wanted to try and get, you know, Irish artists or art, you know artists that I wouldn't normally see here. And I picked up a guy, and I really don't know a lot about him, Damien Dempsey. They don't teach this shit in school. It's a great title, on the isn't it? <laughs> and um, really, it, it, it wasn't. I, I was expecting a, a um, not a typical Irish folk artist, but that's what I was expecting. But it's very hard to describe his music, and and I don't think I can, other than I'm going to send try and send um, Morris a clip, so okay. maybe, maybe we can include it in this broadcast. But very very unusual, sings in the strongest Dublin accent you've ever heard, and you know almost hip hop, almost uh, rap. He's definitely folk. He is definitely folk. Very you know, um, eclectic instrumentation. So it was actually one of those. Um, things where I took a punt on someone, and I think I'm going to pursue more of him. Uh, perhaps read up, a, read up a bit about him. So, is is it more traditional stuff, or is it oh, more no, that's, modern? That, that's what I was expecting, Eric. I thought because the, I went into a little CD shop, um, really great little shop in a small country town, mm-hmm. and they had about I think all four or five of his CDs, and 
And one of them was a CD of covers, Noah, some of your typical, um, you know, Irish folk songs. Uh, but the, he mostly writes his own stuff. And and the funny thing, I was saying to Morris on the phone during the week, I've, I've read about him, but I haven't retained what I read. But I read some, you know, over the years, I've read some good stuff about him. And I've always, so the name's always stuck in the back of my mind. But yeah, no, he, he um, very unusual. Uh, and and it's uh, and and just the voice he sings in it's um as i say very if, if you if you know the dublin accent this is really really strong but, but it works okay how does he um so so i mean if you were to put him on a double bill with with uh, a similar sort of act who would you put him on a double bill with well maybe uh i think eric will possibly know this guy and and a, another guy i don't know a lot about but maybe frank turner Hmm. That that style, you know that that, or he wouldn't go astray with a Billy Bragg. Okay. okay. But but I think but, but different again. Hmm. So uh, okay, so we, when you mention Billy Bragg, uh, is there anything political about what uh, Damien yeah, does? I think, he, I think he's political. I think he's angry. Uh, again, as I say, it's just I'm, it's sort of like a new artist. Um, I'm on the verge of discovering him, I, and I think you know I could become a fan. Excellent. So, I have to ask when you, when you say political, are you talking partisan political or are you talking more social political? Uh, social. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I find that social political is a lot more interesting than partisan political. I look back at punk rock and all the anti-Reagan stuff, and you think, well, you know, Reagan's been dead for a decade. So <laughs> exactly. But you look at somebody talking about, you know, uh, about situations at work or landlords mm. or whatever and that's still relevant yes yes no, I think he's definitely on that phone and, um, and another one I, I, get, I, I don't know whether you guys know um, Luca Bloom yes know the name yeah he's I, I recommend him Eric he's um, okay. he's he's the younger brother of, a, of an icon in Ireland called Christy Moore and he he, he went by the name of Barry Moore until about 1990 and he took um, Luca Bloom, um, Bloom from Ulysses' Odyssey, and Luca from literally the Suzanne Vega song, okay. and reinvented himself. Went to America, uh, spent a lot of time in New York, and he ha- he had a string of pretty successful albums. And I got a um, it's like a DVD box set called The Man Is Alive, and it has uh, an afternoon in Kildare, which is the county he's from, an evening in Dublin. And another documentary and a live CD, so yeah, pretty good. And yeah. Yeah, and the last thing was, I guess, um, powered by um, the appearance on the Olympic closing ceremony. I've always got a soft spot for Ray Davies' Waterloo Sunset. I think, you know, I'm not a I'm not a Kings fan. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm not a, I'm not an overt Kings fan, but I you know I respect their place in history. But um, I've got a CD, the Kinks Choral Collection, Ray I've, Davies. I've, I've heard that one. That's I, I like that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, very interesting. There, uh, so there are a couple of the there are a couple of recent purchases. I, I certainly wasn't expecting what I heard on that. I, I was half expecting it to be, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, a cappella. I thought there was going to be, you know, absolutely no instrumentation on it. Like mm. yeah, the first song, I think it's Days. And it's just him and the vocal. And all right, okay, it's going to be like this. And then the guitars come in and the drum kit. And they're like, oh, okay, it's an instrumentation. But still, yeah, a lot of yeah. fun for all of that. And, and, I mean, experiments like that, I admire them, but I don't know that they always work. But I think 
In this case, the arrangements um, are very tasteful, and uh, I, I think for the most part, they really work. I mean, even even in a song like "You Really Got Me," which it could have been very corny with the choir, but it's it's a lot of fun. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of those. Yeah, look, I guess a lot of those experiments don't work. But um, well, here's one. I was talking to a guy at work about this, and I'd be interested in your take, you guys' takes on this. I, I've got a um, or a few albums I've got over the years which seem like very unlikely pairings, um, where you'll have a you know rough-voiced artist um, and they'll be backed by a symphony orchestra. Now, like that concept, it's, conceptually, it sounds really lame, but um, there are a couple of the best albums I've ever heard. Um, Pete Sadler, sorry, Pete Townsend, live at Sadler's Well, where he did um, basically. The Who's Next um, demo sessions, Lifehouse, backed by the London Symphony Orchestra. Which wasn't the first time that that his stuff had been done with an orchestra. I think the the early 70s, Tommy did like an orchestral um, tour, didn't it? That's right. But if you have, if you, if I'd be interested if you guys have heard that or if you haven't, I'd be interested in another date, your take on it. I just think it's absolutely incredible. No, I I haven't. Go on. I, I haven't heard it, but that that idea of the really rough voice with the really classical or angelic uh, mm. music or kind of, I think that's pretty classic. You look at Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra. That's exactly. what they were doing. Yeah, and and look, I guess what got me interested in this type of arrangement, I think it's maybe you know it's arguably one of the best um, you know juxtapositions of you know two extremes. When Dylan played in uh, Nara Japan in nineteen ninety four. He actually did. There was a there was a there was a, a a concert called the Great Music Experience, and they played three nights. And I think he had like a forty-four piece orchestra conducted by the late Michael Kamen. Okay. And it absolutely, it, you know, again, it sounds ridiculous. You know, one of the most unstructured musicians <laughs> with this forty-four piece orchestra. But if if you listen to the version of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, it, it came out as a single. It is unbelievable, mm. and, and, and I, you know, and, I, I think that Metallica also recorded with Michael Kamen, and a lot of people uh, thought very highly of that album. Yeah, in fact, that might be their last album that that has any kind of and uh, any kind of consensus or any any kind of that fans aren't embarrassed by. Maybe I should mm, say. Mm. And then, and I'll, and just look, I'll get off this topic because it, I guess it's one of my um, cottage industries. This um, rock star or rock band with a with an orchestra, and I and I am such a you know I'm not a, a, a an orchestra kind of guy normally. Um, Arlo Guthrie um, also did something similar. He toured throughout the states with an orchestra, and again, that sounds ridiculous. But the actual um, the actual, you know, the strings and the and the orchestration with some of his, you know, Shaggy Dog story songs just sounds um, amazing. Can you imagine the string section playing Alice's Restaurant for eight yeah. minutes nonstop? Yeah, well, I think um, Alice's didn't make <laughs> Alice didn't make the cut uh, in the track list, but um, you know, some of the some of the other um, some of his other standards were just, you know, it's just it's, it's actually bordering on beautiful. So, so, John, I want to ask you: Have you heard? The Mark Lanigan and As- Isabella Campbell records at all? Yes, and and okay. and and Eric, uh, I was just saying to um, Morris on the phone last night. I think it was you that um, 
in, in one of your guest spots uh, on this podcast, you taught me a little bit about the Screaming Trees. Yes. Yes, I've um, about Yeah. Well, um, yeah, funny you should ask. I've, I've had a, a, a same thing. I, same, and that's a very um, good call. I actually got uh, one of those Mark Lanigan and Isabel Campbell albums <laughs> just before I went overseas. And I, and I can't think of the title of it. I'm just going to go on... Uh, I'm going to keep quiet for a while, go on my iTunes and tell you what it is in a second. Okay. Maybe while he's doing that, you want to uh, run through another couple of uh, releases that you've been listening sure. to? Sure. Um, you know, I just, another thing I just picked up was, uh, all right, so I work in a library. We have a lot of stuff that's donated to the library shop. And at the end of the, the season, they give everything away that's left over. And I got a couple of albums by a band called The Odds. I believe were mentioned in a previous episode. Yes, because um, I, I think it might have been Thomas DJ who uh, so. had, had gone and mentioned them, and I sought uh, one of the albums out, and yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Nice, good, strong power pop. I'm, I'm, I'm really very confident. Yeah, I, I got the two records, Bed Bugs and Good Weird Feeling. I haven't had a chance to explore them just beyond a little bit of a listen to see what they sounded like. Sounds pretty good stuff so far. Yes, kind of power poppy definitely some alternative production and I have to wonder how much of that was a label pushing them because I see the first label they were on were Zoo Records which was not a necessarily a, a major but was kind of a uh, but that, that were taken on by um, one of the majors because like Matthew Sweet yeah. was on Zoo wasn't he? yeah and then uh, I guess they were on uh, Warner's for the, for the other album and I'm wondering if Warner had put some pressure on them so I've been, I've been listening to that. The other thing I've been getting back into is one of my all-time favorite bands, Driving and Crying. Uh, we were talk, I was talking earlier about looking back at a band's catalog. I had read a piece on the Onions AV Club, which is, if anybody's looking for interesting pop culture news, I always recommend that site. You know, since you've grown put, like a, a bunch of posts from AV Club onto... Um, to the, the Love That Album Facebook page or maybe it's your own page. I've been regularly going there. It is an excellent song. Their, yeah. their, reviews, their reviews are normally very insightful. Well, and, and their essays as well. I really yeah. like their Your Consideration essays. But so I've been going, I went back and I started listening to Driving and Crying's uh, 1997 self-titled album, which I had kind of written off. And actually there's some great stuff on here. But what I want to talk about with them is their newest release is a five-song EP called Songs from the Laundromat. And I guess the deal is that they are putting out a total of four EPs. The next one has a great title, and it's... I don't have it right in front. It's something to the effect of... Let me pull it up, actually. Uh, songs about cars, space, and the Ramones. <laughs> and wow. the, idea, the idea is that as they tour, they're going to take six weeks off and record just five songs in some studio with somebody they want to work with around a certain theme. So the next one's going to be their kind of punk album. They're going to have one that's going to be their garage rock record. But I, I think that what they're doing is actually brilliant in this day and age. Uh, What's their predominant style, Eric? What, well, what, what? They, they do some southern rock and some... It's kind of a mixture of southern rock, mm. uh, folk, uh, punk rock. The lead singer and the main guy behind the band is a huge Dylan fan. He's a huge Ramones fan. Uh, you know, he was, they were part of the 80s Atlanta scene, which is right next door to the yeah. Athens scene. And actually, this new EP, uh, Songs from the Laundromat, has a song called R.E.M. that's about R.E.M. <laughs> because uh, Peter Buck produced their album, Mystery Road, which I think is brilliant. And so it sounds like they're all over the place, but there's a cohesive theme. 
Mm. And they're also very so-so political. They're talking about times that are tough and uh, what it's like like for working people in America and for uh, you know kids from broken homes and all of those social ills. Their, their aesthetic sounds to me, and I think um, geographically, they're not too far from um, the. I think uh, they how is it Athens that uh, produced the drive-by truckers? Uh, I think drive-by truckers are from Alabama, but Alabama. they definitely definitely share an influence. And in fact, driving a crime in the last full-length record covered the drive-by truckers. Oh wow! Might and then also, go ahead. So I might have to check these guys out. I'm liking what I hear already. Well, and there's the singer. He has been doing uh, kind of folk alt country stuff for uh, separate from the band for a number of years. Mm. And uh, you know, he has actually his first record's called McDougal Blues. It's about him going to New York and Greenwich Village and thinking he's going to run into a bunch of Dylan clones. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, they're a band I love, and I actually saw them live back in 1995, and they were amazing. They did an electric portion of their set and then an acoustic portion of their set. And definitely worth rescuing from the discount bin. Mm. See them. That's so, yeah, that, that's the I'm, other thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look for these guys. I, I like the sound of them already. All right. Um, I'll just run down a couple of things I've been listening to over the, the last week. Um, well, a few things. Um, in Here in Melbourne, uh, we still have uh, a small number of, uh, of, of uh, very... Uh, well-loved record shops, CD shops, and probably one of the things I want to talk about later on is this whole imminent demise of the CD. Has it been yeah. sold off too short, or, or what's well, going Morris, on? Well, Morris, I can I can report what I saw in Dublin. Right. Well, we'll, we'll very we'll, interesting. We'll, that that'll be good. We'll come to that. Um, but we have still, and I know in Sydney you have um, uh, shops like Red Eye Records and and Mojo, which uh, are really excellent shops. But uh, here in Melbourne, we have um, uh, places like Greville Records and Basement Discs and uh, a, no- a number of others on the northern side of town. Um, but Basement Discs uh, have every week, well, maybe not every week, but certainly every couple of weeks, they have live in-store performances, both from um, a great number of local artists and any uh, interested touring artists. And you know, I-, I think over recent months, they've had you know, the likes of Elon Jewell and oh, I can't remember, you know, come down and play in the store and. Uh, Elon Jewel is amazing. Oh, I've yes. seen, her, seen her live a couple of times, and she puts on a great show and just great stage presence. I'm going to have to um, point you to the way of uh, this local TV show that we have here, uh, Eric, called Rock Quiz. Um, okay. And uh, basically it's a, like a rock trivia night, but they televise it. Um, okay. I talk right with my, my co-host for the... Um, yeah. For, uh, the uh, sweat of the rodeo was the, the adjudicator from that program, but Elon Jewell was on I think a couple of weeks ago, and she's just so sweet. You know, she's yeah, very, uh, very almost very timid, but she knows how to rock out. And it, at the end of the show, they always get the the two guest rock artists to to do a duet, a famous mm-hmm. old song that's got nothing to do with the two of them. So it was Elon Jewell and I don't remember who the male co-star that's pretty embarrassing but the, the two of them did um, handle with care the Travelling Wilburys song and it just okay. worked so well um, but anyway uh, but I digress so they had two days ago at Basement Discs they had this um, 
woman who I'd actually heard of about four or five months ago, got to see her. Her name is Stella Angelico. Now, um, if you'd listened to the show a few months ago, you would have heard me crapping on into uh, Michael Persia's ear every episode about Clary Brown and the Bang and Rackets, who mm-hmm. uh, um, they're, they're, I think their star is going to shine any time now. They're um, the very hard-working group and the word's getting out about how, how fantastic they are. And they're, they're really, it's the whole soul music show, you know, the, the three backup singers um, that they do, the whole the choreography and, and the band dress up nicely and, and, and musically they're just fantastic and the, the, the women look great and they sing great. Mm-hmm. But on the night that I went to see them at uh, this local venue called the Caravan Club, they had this support act, Stella Angelico and The Switch. And Stella Angelico, she's also, I guess, can be classified in the R&B soul vein, but, okay. uh, but there's, it's not like, Clary Brand is like a big band. This is just her and uh, drums, guitar, and, and bass. So she has much less sonically to work with, but um, it every note everything that they do is absolutely perfect and, and Stella she makes a real show of it you know she's um, as I, I think there was a quote that I, I like to frequently take from Seinfeld she has qualities attractive to the superficial man um, so so when, when you watch her she you know she shakes around and um, uh, I'll, I'll put a I'll put a I'll put a, a, a film clip on the uh, Facebook page, but she she knows how to shimmy. Oh, that's that's as much as I'll say. A very attractive woman and a, a really fantastic singer. So um, yeah, she was doing a, a a lunchtime session in Basement Discs. So I thought, oh, another chance to see her, and absolutely fantastic. The uh, the the shop had a lot of people in there to see her, and, and really, it was very hard to go back to work. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, after after watching her do the shimmy, I really felt like I needed to lie down rather than going back to. Her. Uh, to do any work but yeah she's put out an excellent EP Stella Angelico and the Switch just self-titled which uh, I, I think you can buy off her website which is I think just StellaAngelico.com Where does she hail from Morris? Uh, I think she's I think she's Melbourne uh, okay. Melbourne lady um, so she um, according to her bio she's the daughter of a cabaret singer called uh, Peaches La Cream and her father is uh, a magician called Sam Angelico I went did like a little bit of a look on YouTube just before we went on, and uh, apparently, so both Sam and Peaches were a part of a group uh, from the early '80s called the Busby Berkeleys, and they had this song. I don't know if it's a one-off hit called "Hey Max Relax," and the, the <laughs> film clip is very, very funny. Um, a bit of a novelty thing, but but a, a guy in the lineup was um, a man called Henry Mars who, if you lived in Melbourne in the mid to late 80s, you would know of him very well. He was in a group called The Bachelors from Prague. And The Bachelors from Prague were, I guess, a mixture of soul music and cabaret music. Uh, They quite frequently appeared on a television show that was big uh, in the late 80s called The Big Gig, which was mainly uh, stand-up and sketch comedy, but they also had absolutely the best in um, local music. It wasn't quite like uh, Saturday Night Live, but uh, I guess, you know, superficially you'd say it was because of the comedy and the the great music, but 
they took a different approach. I guess more of an approach on stand-up comedy. But anyway, mm-hmm. but yeah, Henry Mars is frequent like that. So he played with um, in this group, the Busby Berkeleys. But I digress heavily. Stella Angelico in the switch. That's um, uh, something to look out for. And she's got a film clip if you want to check it out on okay. YouTube for a song from this EP called Hey Mister. Um, so I've I spent the last couple of days listening to that a fair bit. An album I bought at the beginning of the week, um, only just come out, is the new one from Lost Straight Jackets. Uh, it's called Jet Set. If you're a fan of Lost Straight Jackets, then you know what to expect from this. Yeah. It's surf music with wrestling masks, but I absolutely love it. I, I don't think they can put a foot wrong. I could quite happily listen to this sort of music for hours on end. I think possibly the one um, tune that they do something a little bit different is a thing called Walking Down 3rd Street, which okay. is, um, they, they go a little bit reggae uh, on ah. that one. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> but it, it's still very much Lost Straight Jacket. You know, that, with, with that style of guitar that um, uh, Danny Amos and Eddie Angel do, it's, it's unmistakably, you know who it is, but it, it's, it's you know, not the, um, uh, the sort of music that you expect to hear in a, uh, I, I guess, in a, one of those old surf movies from the 1960s, one of those old beach movies. It, it's, but um, the rest of the album is. Um, and okay. I, that's no criticism. I, I absolutely love it. I've listened to it for ages. Uh, so I'd love to see. I, I can't remember. I had the feeling that Lost Straight Jackets have been in Australia before, but um, my friend Pat, who works at Basement Discs, doesn't believe that that's the case. So if anyone from Lost Straight Jackets happens to be listening to this podcast at the unlikely event, but if you are, please consider coming down here. We'd love to see it. I should actually mention that I haven't been into them for maybe a couple of years or so, and I got into them through a, 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 a clip on YouTube that I saw someone had gone and taken um, some footage, probably with their iPhone, of them playing the main theme from Midnight Cowboy, a tune I've always adored. And when I heard them do it, just I can't hear it any other way now. You know, hearing I love. Um, I, I presume it was Larry Adler who did the uh, the harmonica on the original. But now that I hear the surf guitar, it just sounds like a surf song to me. Um, now, have you uh, explored any of the other '90s surf revival bands? Things like uh, specifically Manor Astro Man? No, I haven't. No, I, I, so, I have. I have heard of Manor Astro Man though, but I, I didn't know that they were a surf band. Yeah, well, they're they're kind of a science fictiony surf band. The the music is mostly surf, yep. but their themes are more B film, science fiction. Uh, what they were really best at was putting out a series of seven inch records around a theme, and they did a lot of really great covers. Yep. But I always think of them in, in Lost Straight Jackets as being kind of the, the spearhead of that whole revival, because you also had the Ghastly Ones and Satan's Pilgrims and all of those Estrus records bands that were, were doing that. So was there a particular record label that was um, pushing a lot of those bands? Yeah, well, Estrus Records out of uh, Seattle, it was a garage rock slash surf label, and they really made their name doing 7-inch records. Uh, I don't think anybody on that label became super huge. Uh, there was, you know, they did, they did get involved with the high-energy rock and roll scene a little bit that I was involved with in the end of the 90s, but uh, overall... They, they had a great catalog, and uh, you know we were always ordering 7-inch records from them. They had a big warehouse fire at some point, and I think that's when the label kind of collapsed. But I definitely, if you like Lost Straight Jackets, definitely recommend checking out uh, Manor Astro Man. 
I've gone and written the name down, so I'm going to uh, get, get uh, one of their albums here. Can you uh, recommend one in particular? Uh, I like their second record, Destroy All Astro Men. That, that's one that I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of. Okay. You, you got, I'm taking notes, and you guys are going to send me. You guys are going to yep. send me broke. <laughs> I've gone broke over the last few days. I can tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll bring up. Because I, I love the sound of Man, Man and Astro Man, mm. and with an, with an album title like that, second album, how can it be? How can it not be good? <laughs> oh God! No, look, um, for, because of a couple of recommendations from um, from listeners to the podcast and people who are going to be on the show, uh, I find I'm going broke. So. Uh, mm. Bernard Stickwell uh, is responsible for the third album I'm going to talk about now. Ever since I ordered this in, and, and I've been playing this non-stop. Uh, Mark Eitzel, uh, formerly of the American Music Club, mm. put out put out this uh, album called "60 Watt Silver Lining." Now, Bernard had gone and put up uh, a YouTube clip. It was just like a front cover of the album of him doing a cover of a Carol King song called "No Easy Way Down." And I just melted. I just thought, this guy sounds like he needs someone to, you know, give him a hug and pat him on the head and say, everything's going to be all right. Uh, and I went out and ordered this album, brought it home, and I, I, really, I just felt like I wanted to sit down with a, with a bottle of the finest malt whiskey while listening to it, and it's going to send me drunk. But um, this is... The guy sounds so wounded, so sad, but I love that baritone voice. I love what he does. Um, and there's a, a live album that he put out. I'm not sure if it was before or after this. Uh, I think called Songs of Love. And um, Bernard sent me a copy of that one. And man, the guy sounds like he's in pain. But I mean, you know, he he in pain is good for you know, the, the putter, who, you know, as. as musical art you know it's just so beautiful i'm I, i'm in love with both of these albums yeah i tried uh, mark eitzel out um i think when i was in the tom waits phase okay and uh he's a very interesting character isn't he yeah look um i i think pat had heard rumors that um on that songs of love album uh, i mean i don't know whether it's certain, but one of one of the songs one of the last songs on the album He's playing away, I think it's called Be Brave or something like that. And uh, towards the end, uh, Pat had heard rumour that you know, he, he just couldn't carry on with the song and he just walks off stage you know, completely in tears. I mean, I don't get that from listening to uh, what I hear mm. on the CD. Maybe it's been edited. Uh, maybe it was just urban myth. But it sure made a great story. But, you know, whatever it is, you, you listen to these songs and... His, what you hear is real emotion coming out. The guy is not just writing these songs because it's you know, a clever academic exercise to do so. There's, it sounds like there's a lot of pain, a lot of heartache in uh, these tunes, and you know, his misery is well, you know, our benefit really because it's some some great music there. So, uh, well, you know that the, the misery coming out in the music oftentimes is a way for people to uh, to to kind of purge those demons. Mm, mm. So, and I, I find that that's, what's usually the, uh, to me, at least the most touching and the most, uh, revealing. And for a lot of people, myself included, I think it's very much a, you're not alone kind of a situation. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. And I think like how many albums have we enjoyed or are the favorite in our canon that, um, where someone's, you know, happy, 
I'm sure there's one somewhere. I don't uh, think, but there's not many. You know, it doesn't seem happiness doesn't seem to drive great art, whereas. Um, uh, look, but I, know, I don't know. I think I, I, think don't, I, don't, I disagree with that. I think I disagree with that, but I'm struggling to think. I'm sure I could well, come up with one. Give me five minutes. Yeah. You know what? There's, a, there's a, a 90s band I love called the Groovy Ghoulies who are a very yep. cartoony, fun, power pop, garage rock band. Yeah. And there is kind of a melancholy underneath a lot of their music. Did they, sorry, sorry to interrupt, did they name themselves after that cartoon show? They did. Right. They did. But they, there's definitely a, a lot of joy in that record, is, or in their records as well. And I, it's this kind of infectious, let's have a good time. Yeah. Let's, Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's be happy or let's, let's have the good times. And I think you can find that through line through, through all kind, you know, blues and swing and mm. pop country and punk. I mean, you can find that all the way through. And I think when it becomes disingenuous is when that's all there is. And I think yeah. when it's soulless and manufactured and it becomes something like a boy band or a, yeah. you know, some kind of artist that, the, that, that some producer has manufactured – you know, I think uh, if you look what we were talking about early '50s rock and roll, a lot of that is very joyful and happy. Mm, but that's true. Artists, as they got older and things didn't all go right, that they start to become reflective and they start what we would say probably maturing. That they start reflecting some of those, you know, either personal or social ills around them. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, actually, I was I, so while we're sitting here, I have been thinking there. There's one album that I really, really love, and I know a lot of people have taken me to task for it, but it's just great, great pop, and that was Katrina and the Waves, the first album, the one that had Walking on Sunshine. I know that's ubiquitous and people are sick of it, but that is just a fun, happy album. I mean, I don't know, do you call it great art? Do you call it art? But it is it is a favourite album of mine, and you know, there you go, that's happy, and, and I think that's yeah. truly a great album. Are you guys hearing that? There's I got a siren going by but over here. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, so well, you know, if if you're forced to leave your house, then uh, let us know. No, that's it's not 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 the house. It's it's but it's out there. So right, I, I apologize if that makes it into the recording. No, I I think that actually adds some atmosphere. Okay, mm. you know we we got in, international uh, international ambulance. That's yeah, uh, no, it's I, you know the town I live in is is relatively safe. So it's, mm. you know, well, actually, most of America is fairly safe when you look at it. But you know, you hear sirens going by and people like what's going on so <laughs> all right sorry to uh derail the music talk there no 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 that's that's good you know we, we're trying to give the listeners like a, a little a one minute break there you know just you know, okay. to let us know that we are human beings and we're, we're not just music geeks but you know we, we are concerned when we hear ambulances going on and when we hear <laughs> the couple next door they've been at it so long they're bound to win a prize oh no there i go making a music link again um, all right, listen, at the 46 minute and 16, minute, uh, and 16 second mark, I think I need a glass of water to uh, okay. refresh my vocal cords. So uh, maybe what we'll do is have a quick break and right. I'll throw in a, a promo for one of the podcasts I love and we'll come back and uh, chew the fat some more. We'll be back. Okay. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris at this end and John at the apex of the triangle and Eric at the other apex of the triangle. We'll, uh, we'll be back shortly. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? 
Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think the Cicerese is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back from break. Morris here, John there, Eric over there even further. And um, while I was going to get a, uh, a couple of glasses of water, the two of those fellows, they were talking as if we were recording. It was all valuable, interesting stuff. Carry on. We were just, <laughs> yeah, we were just chatting about the, um, it, you know, as we were t- I was talking earlier about Driving and Crying and the lead singer, Kevin Kenny, doing, uh, going from kind of a, a punk rock uh, early years to a more mature or folk country roots rock later on and we were t- talking about various artists over the time that have done that well just saying morris that um what i what i found fascinating i um i, I tried out a little bit of um i guess mid-90s u.s punk i uh, think from they might have hailed from florida mm. hot water music and and i tried my hardest but Every time I listened to it, you know, both ears or at least one ear, it start bleeding. It was, it was really hardcore. Yeah. But but um, the lead singer, um, I, I've since picked up every single thing he's released as a solo artist, and um, he, he still sing. He's still got this incredible gruff voice. Um, yeah, not probably a you know, million miles away from a Springsteen, but even gruffer. Yep. Um, but he but he tries all these side projects where it'll be he'll do a country album he'll do his folk album he'll do his bluegrass album and um, Eric came up with the uh, and, I, and I think he's right and I've never really thought about it myself but it's just it's a natural progression as artists you know I guess age through their thirties maybe into their mid forties you know they've had kids and wives and they've got you know they've got over drugs or they got through their drug period they've been divorced remarried and. I guess it probably isn't relevant for them anymore to be in a punk band with blaring guitars and they want to, you know, they've got something to say, but they want to say it in a slightly different um, medium or, or genre. Okay. You know, this for me, this, the, the, this whole concept goes back to me seeing an interview with Al Jorgensen from Ministry back in about 91. He was being interviewed on MTV following the original... Lollapalooza tour and he was talking about his country band and he said you know Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash George Jones those guys were the original punk rockers and it was years later when I thought about that again and I said you know with all the punk rockers that that uh that have gone quote-unquote alt country you can see that now I don't know if if, any of you familiar with the band Uncle Monk no which is Tommy Ramone's bluegrass band oh really Wow. Yeah, and it's quite good. It's quite good. What I've heard from them is quite good. And it's, it's you know, you don't need to be screaming at, you know, 100,000 beats a minute. You can sit back and, you know, let your voice carry your message and be more open and be a little more mature, a little more subtle in your, your writing. Mm. And I think even if you look at maybe Bruce Springsteen, you look at his early kind of garage rock stuff and you move into the 80s when he gets to the Nebraska period and he's kind of slowing it down and you know he doesn't have to be you know it doesn't have to be screaming born to run 
No, and I think, and I think, um, even though he'll still do those, um, you know, songs in concert, obviously, mm -hmm. yeah, possibly because he has to. But as a, you know, as a maturing artist and as a songwriter, he's not, he, he, you know, at forty-five or fifty-five, and he's sixty-two now. He's not going to write a song from the perspective of a twenty-two-year-old kid trying to get out of a small town. He's got, <laughs> he's got yet. different things on his mind. See that. See, the thing is, a lot of these artists, they can't win. If they do keep doing songs like that, then mm. they're called uh, old and pathetic and why don't you move on? And yet if they do move on, they say, well, why didn't you stay loyal to your early fans? Mm. I mean, I mean look, I, I'm guilty of it. I, I've often gone and said, if you, you know, listen to the early podcast, that you know, my favourite album of his of all time is The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Mm. And yet... Uh, I mean, I love I love heaps of what's gone on beyond that, but geez, I'd love to hear another album like that. But you know, obviously, that's not going to happen, and why should it? Mm. Well, you know, the thing is, he could do another album like that, but from the point of view of being who he is now, looking back at who he was, yeah. Now, if you look, one of the one of the people we were talking about off off recording was uh, Alejandro Escovedo. Mm -hmm. who was in the band The Nuns, which is a San Francisco punk band that I absolutely love. And then he was in a band called Rank and File, which is a yep. were a 80, one of the first 80s cowpunk bands, which I love. Yep. And then his record from a couple of years ago, which actually I believe he is Springsteen's manager now, uh, Real Animal, was really a look back at his musical history. Mm -hmm. And he had different songs about different periods that were in the style of those periods. And it was kind of a autobiography and a tour of his musical uh, growth from mm. early punk days through working in bands with other people to becoming, you know, No Depression Magazine called him the most important act of the 90s. Mm. Yes, he, he's very well respected. I went on a bit of a um, kick on, on him and I got a lot of the... Um, the nuns and I'm trying to think, rank and file, and I also had... Yep. Uh, Another, another, at least another two bands he was in. I did a massive trade years ago from mm -hmm. with a guy in California that I think was a you know, huge fan. I got about in one fell swoop about twenty Alejandro uh, discs. Mm -hmm. But I, I've I've only heard a live show uh, of Real Animal, and even as recently as the last two or three weeks, I was considering buying. Uh, he's got an album Street. I can't think. Street Songs of Love. Yeah. And, and yeah. What's that like, uh, Eric? Is it worth getting? It's, it's okay. There's some really yeah. good stuff on there. And I actually saw him play live here a couple of years ago, and he put on a great show. And mm. this was right before that record came out. And yeah. there's some good stuff. I really like um, the Boxing Mirror and Real Animal. And then yes. actually I've just gotten his newest one, which is called Big Station. And I haven't had a chance to really listen to it a lot yet. I'd be interested but, uh, in your take on it because that was the other one I was considering getting. Well, most definitely. And, and that kind of leads into something else that, that I was hoping we were going to talk about with the death of CD topic, which is uh, I have it on vinyl. I mm. bought it on vinyl. It came with yeah. a free download. Wow. Which that, is, which isn't, that, isn't that the strange thing? You sort of, you're now seeing things available on download and on vinyl and you know, mm. CDs almost an afterthought. And I remember the early days of CD. Um, it was a C it was uh, you'd get the 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 bonus track on the CD to lure you to spend the extra money and nowadays yeah. the CD's the cheap alternative. 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, what I'm holding here is the stack of the vinyl that I've gotten in the last couple of months. Mm. And we've got Alejandro Escovedo with free download. I've got this Swedish band I absolutely love called The Soundtrack of Our Lives. Uh, got that with a free download. Mm. I've got the Gaslight Anthem's new record, handwritten on vinyl. John, be steady. Download. John, be steady. <laughs> I've so- got the Bouncing Souls Comet. Which they were a punk band that I liked in the 90s and then kind of fell away from, but I really love this new album. I got that with a free download. Eric, are you saying that you'll, you'll buy a download and, and, you, and they'll post out a vinyl? What I'm saying is I buy the vinyl and it comes with a card. Oh, okay, gotcha. That you get the download with. Wow. Or, so, all right, I got this band from Sweden that are friends of mine, the Valadoras. I got their LP. They yeah. not have a free download, but... Uh, I have I have their music on CD because they gave it to me when I was last over there. And then here's the kicker: I have the new Kelly Hogan album. You familiar with Kelly Hogan? No. No, actually, I, the- I saw I saw a, uh, a Kelly Hogan disc in um, in uh, that basement discs where I okay. went to see the the gig the other day. So in the new releases section. So, well, uh, she was, so what, what's the deal with her? She was recently on Sound Opinions, but she was in a band in okay. the '90s called the Jody Grind who were an alternative band and uh, they were in a car accident and half the band died. Oh dear. And she's been singing backup for people like Nico Case and John Rawhouse and oh, the Bloodshot wow. record scene. And she finally put out her first solo record. It's called I Like to Keep Myself in Pain and I got it in an LP and it came with the CD. Ah, okay. So wow. it's, that's the old-fashioned way. I've had three records now on LP that came with copies of the album on CD. I've had the Shooter Jennings Wolf album with the CD. Mm-hmm. I've had the the latest um, Social Distortion record came with the, the CD, and now the Kelly Hogan record. Now, I'll tell you what, you mentioned Nico Case, and I'm already sold. I have to get this Kelly Hogan CD now. But what, what I'm saying is that for me, that I would rather buy it on, on, on the LP yep. and ho- hopefully get the download, or it will come with the CD, and that way... I can have the 12 by 12 record that I can play on my record player. Mm. And then I also have it so that I can take with me on my iPod. Mm. And for me, I I think that this is the way we're going to go with physical media. I think, you know, we talk about the death of the CD. I don't believe the CD is going away. We've got, what, almost 25 years of compact discs out there floating around. Yep. Yeah. And we have a generation of people that were raised on compact discs and a generation of people that converted from LP to compact discs. They're not yeah. going anywhere anytime real soon. But do you but think I, they're, they're going I, – I, I'm just wondering about the generation like um, before us. Like, you know, my daughters are um, 12 and 15. Okay. They don't feel like they need to own anything physical. That You know, they no. do all the download stuff. And I'm just wondering – you know, and whether, um, you know, guys like me that, you know, I, I just love the smell of an old secondhand, I still call them record stores, yeah. but, but you know what I mean, and just, you know, flicking through things, whereas is, is, is online going to take over and everything's going to be um, digital? No. Well, I- so I, I just wanted to put in the point, because you, you mentioned about your, your young daughters, but are they, uh, I mean, even taking into the fact that, you know, they're still quite young, but mm. are they really into music? I mean, is not it... yet, not yet. But they're, but they're just they're showing big signs the last year or two. So is the question, you know, that still that those who are you know 
who love their music, doesn't matter what type it is, mm. uh, are still into physical media because, you know, whatever, the liner notes, the, yeah. um, the, the, the lyric sheets and all that sort of thing, and being able to hold something physically in your hand, as opposed to saying, right, well, it, it's a whole lot of cherry picking. I don't want a whole album. I want this song. I want that song. I want that song. And sure, I guess maybe, you know, when, when there were times when albums came out and there, were, there was so much filler, uh, you know, maybe like you know, mm. really early Beach Boys records, early '60s things. Um, that they, they, they had to fill up that time. But now, when we get albums as art unto themselves, and you know, yeah, sure, they're still filler. But when you get albums that are designed to be listened to from go to woe, do more people want to hear those albums as a physical media, or are more music lovers, regardless of age, happy to go towards that uh, that download way? Yeah, I mean, I, I know. I, look, I, I I can't honestly answer why I still like the old media. Is it because you know you I don't know you can't autograph an MP3? Not <laughs> uh, look, my my most prized possession is um, a, a vinyl copy. Couldn't stand the weather. When Stevie Ray Vaughan was in Melbourne back in 1985, I got him and the whole band to sign. About 40 of us went backstage he was so generous with his time got that signed and you know if that had been you know mp3 you know if that's how all we were ever listening to what well, you know get him to sign my hand it's got to get you know washed the next day but or in, in so, i won't say 20 years time in five years time will, <laughs> will we will we be taking a hologram to a concert to, to get them yeah. to sign I, I think i think that you're always going to have that hardcore group of fanatics who want the physical yeah and the question I usually ask people who are quote unquote into music when I meet them is, what is the album or the recording or the song or the, if you can identify it, the moment where you went from being somebody who was a casual music listener or listen, just listen to music in general to yeah. somebody who was a, who was part of their life that became, yeah. you know, I always say that it, it you know, be, became their drug of choice, that they were mm -hmm. always chasing that next garage rock or country yeah. rock high. Mm -hmm. And I think that, for a lot of people, you know, it's it's the background soundtrack. It's the I'm driving to work and this is what's on. But you have that part of the population that are, uh, you know, that that follow it, that are into it, that it's part of who they are. It's part yeah. of their identity. And do, do you guys get frustrated with this one? Because I always try and I guess um, I'm on. You know, if you go to a party, you look at someone. You can tell a lot about a person by you know, the music they like or what their favourite mm -hmm. band is or favourite artist. And one of the things I hate is when you'll say to someone, oh, you know, what music do you like? Oh, all sorts. Oh, oh. I've, I've gotten yeah. frustrated with that and, so and I, many I'll, times. I'll keep, I'll keep probing, but, but because sometimes you're just looking for, you know, something to start a conversation. You might yeah. be a party or something. But if you can get someone that's honest and sometimes people are ashamed of their, you know, musical taste, but if, if, the, if someone will nominate something, you can normally talk about it, even if you don't. You know, like um, that band or that musician. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and I, I, I understand what Eric's saying. Eric, we, uh, I think it was on one of Morris's podcasts, we spoke about, um, I think it might have been my first one. What I found, what I find myself doing in my older age, I, I've just turned 50, um, okay. in that what I've been doing probably the last 10 years uh, is. Not so much listening to the mute to the artists that got me here, you know, the you know Dylan or Neil Young or Springsteen or Van Morrison or the band is I've actually been going pretty hard trying to find you know young 
sometimes independent, yeah, mostly independent release bands because I find that more exciting because I'm trying to I'm trying to find that next band that I'm going to barrack for, that I'm going to root for, that I want every one of their albums. And that's what I seem to be eternally doing, you know, the last 10 years or so. And as, as I said before, I mean, littered with many failures, but when you get that one that you like, boy, it's satisfying. Most definitely. Like I said, it's, 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 it is a drug. I, I, my, I used to write for a webzine called Rock Fiend that one of my friends put together. And I think he hit it, the nail on the head. You are fiending for that rock and roll high. Yeah. And then another friend of mine in Sweden who plays in a band called The Maggots, said, well, you know, you're looking for that next garage rock moment that's going to grab your soul and drag you along. Mm. And it's this eternal quest to find that. And isn't it, isn't it a great quest? Mm. It is. Well, you know, too much coffee man says addiction's unavoidable. Choose yours wisely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm going to make, well, I, I don't know, this isn't a digression, but I guess because of what we were saying before, with regards to, you know, you go to the party and you ask people, what do you like to listen to? And, um, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, all sorts. And, you know, right, they mean absolutely nothing. Um, well, but, can, I, can I just jump onto that and say my, my favorite is somebody says, well, I like everything except country. Which usually <laughs> leads to me saying, so you don't like Johnny Cash? And people are like, no, 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 I like Johnny Cash. And then I say, mm. so you don't like Willie Nelson? And they're like, oh, Willie's okay. Like, you mm. don't like Merle Haggard or George, George Jones, and they go, okay, all right. What I don't like is the new country. I'm like, okay, that's mm. not what they say, though. And yeah. I, so I have this whole digression that people go on, and that just, it kind of irks me. Because yeah. I can say that I'm not the world's biggest fan of, say, jazz, but I can name several jazz artists that connect with me. Mm. You know, I, I'm not a disco fan. But I'm sure there's something out there that I, I would kind of like to listen to once in a while. Mm. Um, All right, go on. I just the, had to. Let's no, start. no, no, no. I think oh, no, that's that's yeah. De look, definitely a point um, to be made. But what I wanted to this is actually thanks uh, to your good self, Eric. Um, after I did the episode of Love That Album covering uh, a Big Star's number one album, you sent mm -hmm. me uh, the book uh, Radio City by Bruce Eaton. Uh, in the 33 and a third series of books that cover one album per book and the recording and um, everything that went on around the mm -hmm. recording of that album. But funnily enough, um, the the thing that I took the most out of this book had nothing to do with the recording of Radio City. There's I, I, Has it been a long time since you've read this or... It's been it's been a while. Okay, well, but I'm I'm sure you'd remember this this story. And this is this is something that I guess I felt the same way of, uh, as to what the this, the crux of this these couple of pages allude to for the last few years. But I'll, look, I'll just read a little bit about it because um, and then describe the rest. So uh, Bruce Eaton. Okay, so just a little bit of background for the folks out there. The author of the of the um, book Radio City, uh, his name is Bruce Eaton. And he got in contact with um, Alex Chilton uh, sometime, I think, in the mid to late 70s. And he played in a band, uh, which oh, I've, I've already gone and forgotten. I've only read the book only a couple of weeks ago. I've already forgotten the number of the book that he was in, but, uh, the band that he was in. But he basically convinced that for you know a couple of hundred dollars, uh, Alex Chilton would come and play with his little band at some some 
uh, venue, I don't know where it was, in, in New York or somewhere like that. Buffalo, I believe. Buffalo, well, New York State. Um, and um, anyway, so, there, so there's something that Bruce writes about the aftermath of the gig, and I'll just I'll read a little bit of it, as I said, and summarise the rest. So Sep- September Girls might have been the highlight of the show for me, but the song with the biggest impact of the evening belonged to Supertramp. After our set, we sat down at the table to cool off. Someone put a quarter in the jukebox and the opening chords of the logical song filled the club. Breakfast in America was a huge album at the time, one deemed totally uncool by any self-respecting rock snob. But before I would reflexively make a snide comment, Alex started to nod his head to the beat in a way that indicated approval. I believe that I felt confused and even horrified. Uh, And then he sort of goes on basically to sort of summarize how he's gone as a result of that night, as a result of seeing his hero, his idol, the man who'd gone and written and performed all these songs that he truly loved, um, both through the box tops and, but more importantly, through, uh, through a big star, loved a song that by rights should have been considered daggy. And he, you know, from then on, He's taken a, you know what, live and let live attitude. And I, I guess I've sort of tried to take that the last few years and possibly after reading uh, High Fidelity when it came out and thinking, oh my God, I don't want to end up like uh, like Barry in, in that. And certainly I, I know that listening to uh, Silver and Gold and hearing Zom always saying, you know what, you like what you like. And, you know, people can, it, it, that's not to say uh, records or songs are above criticism, but uh, people who like those songs should never be criticised for, for liking that. I know it sounds obvious, but it's been an easy trap to fall into. But the extension of that, though, given what we've just spoken about it, I know we've, we're, and we've all claimed to be frustrated with those people who come to the parties and claim they like everything mm-hmm. but country, and then they show that they don't really know. But is that is it is you it know, a problem to be even judging people who say that they like everything when they like nothing? But we just say, well, you know, that's your life, that's your lot, that's fine. I like what I like. You probably you know have your own passion somewhere, and that and your passion doesn't have to be my passion. But it's such an easy trap to fall into. Your thoughts? It, it is, and I, that that story reminds me of, of two stories. One is a scene in an interview with Alice Cooper in one of those History of Rock and Roll documentaries where he was talking about the Bee Gees and saying, oh, we all talked trash about them at the time, but secretly we thought they were brilliant. And then I heard a story once about Lenny Kay, the the guy that put together the Nuggets set Mm -hmm. and was Patti Smith's guitar player, that in the uh, the late 90s, somebody started talking to him about NSYNC, one of those boy bands, and he basically said, you know, it's not my thing, but for what they are, they do it very well, and it is something that, speaks to you know obviously a generation for whatever reason i think for me the the issue with people saying uh you know i like everything and them really not liking anything is just an inability to um for for them to vocalize or to recognize that hey it's okay and it's important for them to go you know i like this weird little band over here that you're probably yeah. not going to like or that it seems like so much of it is about well just what whatever whatever the culture says is okay at the time is okay with me. And I think um, that it's when I meet somebody and I'm trying to talk to them about something like that, that you're trying to connect with somebody. And if you're realizing that 
they don't really have a connection with art or something that they're really passionate about in this world that you're not going to really have, you know, a, you're n- you might become friends for whatever reason, but you're not necessarily going to have a friendship that lasts or has a lot in common. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, mm. well, it, it, or at least it's not going to be based on, you know, uh, music or art or something. You know, I mean, look, I, I, I guess. Know, yeah, no, go on. The, uh, the one other thing about that is, uh, so I, I said earlier that I like to ask people, well, what's the thing that, that made you the mu- music fan? The next question for me always is, well, what what point did you realize you were a music fan rather than a country fan or a punk fan? Because there's some point when you realize that I don't have to be stuck in this genre and there's good stuff, or not not good stuff, but stuff that speaks to me in every genre. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, look, I I, I guess like it, it's... Um... Something with, with a lot of people who I've met, uh, they they do tend to be maybe either stuck in one artist or one genre, but they but at least the fact that they are passionate about whoever that might be, mm-hmm. they might say right. Well, if I make a recommendation to them, they say, well, you know what I like, so well, you know, I'll, I'll take that recommendation on board. And, and next thing I know, I mean, I think even John and I were speaking about this a couple of hours ago on the phone. Um, with, with regards to um, was it your your friend John who was a, a Dylan nut and um, eventually you know, took on Springsteen after a thousand years of collecting Dylan bootlegs or something? Yeah, I got a, a good friend here in Sydney, um, Eric. He massive mm-hmm. Dylan, Dylan fan as I am. You know, like he's probably he he's probably responsible for my moment. But um, was he was that to the exclusion of just about all else? No, well, well, Dylan was sort of like my beginning. Yeah, no, but for for your friend. Oh, was yeah, listening. it was Dylan to the exclusion of all else. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say, look, uh, what are you listening to? And you go, oh, uh, you know, the nineteen nineteen ninety seven um, never ending tour, and then a couple of weeks later, what are you listening to? Yeah, ninety one, yeah, whatever. And I'm going, wow, you know, and I, I, I love Dylan, but but um, prob- yeah, I can't listen to you know, and I did during my you know, I guess height of Dylan fandom, but I kept saying to him, look. Uh, look, listen to this guy Springsteen. He's he's pretty good live, and um, and and something uh, after years and years. I'm talking, you know, a decade to fifteen years of resistance. Something clicked, and now he's he's just a rabid uh, Springsteen fan, and mm. he he gets more live shows than I do. In fact, he's now my main supplier. He, you know, he, he's, <laughs> he's, he, he's he's got. You know, it's, it's it's actually getting quite comical. He goes, "Yeah, look, I, I've, uh, he's he's a downloader. You know, he's um, okay. far more uh, tech savvy than I am. I still trade. You know, I love the personal touch of trading and you know, writing letters, swapping emails, swapping ideas. But mm-hmm. he, are, you, are you on first name basis with the lady or the gentleman at the uh, Australia Post? Yeah, just about. I know I was for years. Yeah, but anyway, my friend and you know, he goes, "Yeah, look, I've up my." Um, um, in internet big pond to 20 gig and then I was talking to him only the other week he goes my wife said hey our computer's going really slow <laughs> and, he, and he, um, he said and it was quite funny you know um, he said you know uh, and I think any of us that have been married for a long time agrees with this uh, tactic he said look my best form of defense was attack and he accused <laughs> he accused his wife of the reason why the internet was running slow is because you were looking a lot of uh, look, looking on a lot of furniture Sites, <laughs> not that he, he'd exceeded 20 gig of you know monthly 20 gig, and yeah, he's just gone berserk. 
And, and and now he's saying that I've ruined him because he said now he can't really listen to a current Dylan show because, um, you know, I, I guess we all respect Bob and 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 I think we 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 wait with interest what uh, this current album Tempest will bring. But and I was a massive Dylan defender until about I, I went to a show here in Australia in two thousand and three, and it didn't do anything for me. He'd gone. You know, 30 metres from the lip of the stage, he was facing side on, he was playing a dinky little keyboard. But the great thing that I thought was, you know, his greatest asset was the ability to convey, you know, meaning through the way he phrased was mm -hmm. gone. You know, he had that um, very throaty, um, don't, know, don't know how to describe it. Well, I, I basically, I've been telling people who have asked, like, I think possibly the last Dylan recording I heard was maybe from about three, four years ago, mm. and I've just been saying he sings two notes and neither of them very good. Mm. <laughs> so, um, listen, I'm going to make another quick pause and I'll okay. reveal the reason why when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Love That Album, having great conversation here. I uh, hope you're enjoying it out there. Uh, myself, uh, John and Eric, and we'll be back shortly with yet another guest. You're listening to Love That Album. Be back soon. <laughs> This is Rachel on Film from the Girls on Film Radio. Are you tired of all those vegetarian or vegan podcasts? We just listened to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema had to say about the Girls on Film Radio. A lot of good meat in there. There's a lot of good meat in there uh, that the girls talk about. You guys got a lot of nice meat over there at the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So there you have it. The Meaty Film Discussion by Meaty Women. Listen to Girls on Film Radio. Girlsonfilm.podomatic.com Morris Bustinski back here. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 28, called Shooting the Shit. And uh, up until now, it's been myself, John Sturrett in Sydney, Eric Reanimator in Ann Arbor. But now... We're making a, a quartet, the great Tim Merrill uh, from, uh, well, he's based in South Korea now, but originally from... Uh, Ontario. Ontario. Yeah, just outside of uh, Toronto. So we truly have a United Nations quorum here, and uh, we're just discussing off air about how uh, the four of us are going to be able to uh, uh, create world peace and, and cures for all known medical diseases and and the like, so um, really, this is a very diverse podcast here, but uh, seeing as how you've just joined the quorum, Tim, uh, any music, I know you've just come back from uh, a wonderfully exciting two-week holiday, so um, maybe give us a little bit of a rundown on what you did. Oh, I just uh, got back this morning from a two-week jaunt to Cambodia, right. and uh, I don't want to make any jokes about a holiday in Cambodia, but that's yeah, what I was it was. Gonna do that. <laughs> oh, you're, and you're, and you're, you're not going to be too drunk to fuck, are you? No. Okay. Well, there was a couple of nights there when I had my doubts, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that Mekong whiskey will sure uh, kick you upside the head, man. I'll tell you that. So, no. so, tell us a little bit about the trip. I, mean, I know we, we spoke a little bit and you showed me... Um, or, or, or sent a link to a YouTube video saying, right, you see this see this uh, bit of train travel? I've done this, and boy, was it scary. Well, yeah, it was. that was the bamboo train. It was basically uh, back in the day when uh, the locals, they found um, 
alternate ways of traveling down a train track. And what they did was they just took basically just a bamboo slat and they just connected it to a couple of rollers on the track and hooked up a motorcycle engine to the back. And you sit on and you just sit on a bamboo mat and hold onto the handle and the guy just, you know, cranks the throttle and you go blasting down the tracks. So it's kind of like a mini combination of a go-kart roller coaster uh, or those, uh, you know, those old-fashioned, uh, remember the uh, the carts they would have in the westerns with oh, the handles? Yes. Two guys would pump, you know, almost something like that, between that and a variation of a Mad Max vehicle. Oh, but uh, they've had this thing going on for the last, uh, I'd say, five five to ten years. They've actually had this bamboo train. And um, see, the problem is in Cambodia, because the country is so astronomically, abysmally poor, that things take a long time to really come into place and so uh for example they're trying to put a national train line in and it's going to take at least 10 years where in any other country it would take you know a matter of two to three so eventually they're going to phase this bamboo train out they're going to go and put a proper track line right through there like a national line but as for now it's just kind of like a dead-end line that goes like five miles down the track to a little village and then five miles back but what's funny is when you're going down this track and you're booting along, all of a sudden you see the same exact cart coming in the opposite direction. And it's one line. So you're thinking, well, what the hell are you going to do? Well, that's when you, you get off the cart. And you, you lift it up with the help of the driver and you pull it off and you pull the rollers off the track and you let the other car drive through. And then you go and reassemble your bamboo cart all again and just, uh, you know, Carry on. I tell you what, we could learn something about common road courtesy here in in Melbourne from uh, from that. Yeah, yeah, but um, Cambodia in a whole, man. It's you know you could. I said to a friends of mine that live there now permanently. I said, you know, you could be in this country for thirty years and you still can't wrap your head around it. It's it's impossible, considering their history, the uh, unfathomable. Uh, 70s that they went through the five years of the Khmer Rouge and mm, mm. all the aftermath and you know the fact that the people still persistently smile and they're still you know pretty positive considering you know the abysmal poverty that they live in and it's 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 just insane but uh, to tie this back to music since That's, this is a music show after all it is my buddy and I Gary we we were big on the uh, Cambodian 60s garage stuff that was coming out. You see, ah. for a lot of people that don't know, when Pol Pot came in, he had a policy that he called Year Zero. And that meant that everything before him didn't exist in Cambodia. So pretty much all art, all literature, everything that came in before the Khmer Rouge was all destroyed. And they were able to salvage a lot of the music and we we actually went and went into a little v, VCD place. You see, like in Cambodia right now, people still use cassettes, mm -hmm. and and they use uh, VCD is pretty much state of the art. Oh, really? Yeah. So we we went and we found a lot of greatest hits uh, compilations of all uh, the '60s and '70s singers, and we found them on VCD. And then we just uh, tried to attempt to just rip all the audio files off the discs and then that's the way that we could get the music because um, 
it's it, it's not exactly it's really hard it, it's weird like going into like a foreign it, this isn't just like going over to France and finding you know like a Lou Reed bootleg this uh -huh. is like you know going into like a you know this country where half of the history of of what's been recorded is gone and all the locals you know it's like they don't even they wouldn't even imagine anybody outside of Cambodia having an interest in this music mm. Or I should I should elaborate. I should say a Western audience because yes. uh, you know the Vietnamese and the Thais they enjoy it. You know I mean every video um, karaoke or every uh, place you know within Southeast Asia has variations of these songs. But to actually uh, for them to think that you know some guy from uh, America or Canada is going to be like oh you know that singer blah 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 and they were like. What the hell do you know about her, man? Like, what what are you asking? You know, what are you asking for her for? Like, you know, it, they were just stunned that we even had a remote interest in the Cambodian music. Mm. One of the things I've always found is that that people in non English speaking countries are always amazed when you express some interest in their their local music. I know in uh, Finland, there's a uh, guy named Ratio Tapavara who was like a big Johnny Cash esque singer back in the fifties and. When I went to Finland with my brother and he was looking for his stuff, all of our Finnish friends were saying, why do you want that old stuff? You, how do you know about that old stuff? Right. Exactly. And I've actually read about this Cambodian uh, garage rock music in, I think, Ugly Things magazine. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a market for it out there for sure. Yeah, there was, well, the thing was, was that they, because a lot of the artists at that time, like I say, like it was so, the country's so impoverished and, you know, it's been shit on by Vietnam and been shit on by Thailand. And it's kind of like the redheaded stepchild of, you know, Southeast Asia, so to speak. But, uh, the thing is, is that a lot of these bands were so poor and the artists were so poor that they couldn't even really afford to two full albums. So what they would do is they would record a song or two and then add them to a compilation. And you know, and it wasn't an issue of making a compilation to provide variety. It was an issue of you know putting together a compilation so the stuff could be heard. Mm -hmm. Because you know, like a lot of times now in the current scene, you know, a lot of the hipsters are like, oh, well, we'll just put out a single or we'll put out an EP or whatever. But it's it's by choice. But back then, it was just kind of like, well, we can only afford two tracks, and these are the two tracks, and that's it. You know, and some of these artists, you might have never heard them again. Or else, if the songs were really, you know, catchy, and they, you know, they had the luck of the Irish, so to speak, uh, they were able to basically get picked up. Like everyone wanted them to do more, they encouraged them to do more. What were their influences, Tim? Uh, I don't. I, I would say like it was a combination of like the traditional Cambodian folk songs mm -hmm. and a mixture of that with, of course, the Fab Four, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and. I mean, this is this is the thing that. And that's really how would those guys get the, that exposure? Would it be someone bringing a record in, or they'd hear it on? They'd be able to tune in on a radio, or. Well, well, I think what it is, and this is an interesting thing that I think is kind of totally under uh, underappreciated or whatever. I mean, like we look at the internet today and saying that no matter where you are in the world, you know you. You can get state-of-the-art information instantly, and mm. but I mean, there's a lot to be said for the AM radio, the mm. transistor mm. radio back in the '60s, right? I mean, you know, the Beatles. It's almost like the gods must be crazy in a sense. You know, 
it, it really is because I mean this thing comes in from outside this source and you know they're not quite sure how to approach it and then then, then they try to go about it their own way incorporating what they already know with you know some of the simple Ford car uh, four chord uh, you know yeah, riffs but, but it's, it's interesting though that you mentioned you know they, they might have just heard a lot of this sort of stuff on AM radio but you got to remember that you know in in the early 60s or maybe you know the late 50s a lot of that music in in all sorts of you know, places in the world we're talking about including you know Western Western societies which you know where a lot of this music originated uh, deemed this music to be a you know, devil's music and not fit for our children to listen to and um, sure. and, and a lot of that stuff like in, in England you know the BBC wouldn't play it so you know it was going on to uh, those pirate radio stations and um, a, a friend of mine who uh, runs a choir here in Melbourne originally he's from uh, uh, Georgia as in Soviet Union Georgia yeah and he was um but he's like uh, he's a doctor of ethnomusicology, so his two passions are you know the, the music of the regions of Georgia and the Beatles, and he's written arrangements of Beatles songs in uh, Georgian styles. But he was you know, frequently telling me he was you know back in the sixties he was buying buying Beatles records on the black market. So it's just when you, when you mentioned the AM thing, I'm sort of figuring well you know, was was that sort of it was western influences you know like the beatles uh allowed especially under you know pol pot well you no, gotta remember was... that that part of the world had a lot of uh, british colonies at that point in time well and... they, cambodia was strictly the french but the french brought in a lot of stuff too you know i mean like the french were in vietnam the french you know the french had a big foothold in southeast asia mm. so they were bringing in a lot but here's an interesting thing is that Going back to the bamboo train just for a second, and I don't mean to digress, but it just made me think of something, was uh, when I got off the train, I got out into the middle of this little village, and it was out in the middle of nowhere, like literally the sticks, and all there was was a tin shack, and all these little kids are coming up to me, and they're talking to me, and they speak fairly decent English, and the kids are like, Mister, Mister, you 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 like wrestling? You like Undertaker? You you like Rey Mysterio? You like this? You like? I'm like. How the hell do you know about professional wrestling? Like, you know, like, it just stunned me. The kids knew all the names. They had their favorites and everything. And then the girl shows me where her mother is, where her mother's. I bought a T-shirt and showing me where her mother went to get the change. And here they've got a car battery hooked up to a television. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is, by hook or by crook, if they want to get access to something, they'll do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like in Cambodia today, like, you know, I went into a Vietnamese cafe and they had uh, three TVs going on at the same time. And one was showing a uh, Cambodian dub version of uh, Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. And then the, <laughs> second, the second one was showing like uh, WWE wrestling and the third one was showing some Hong Kong Kung Fu film and they're all showing them at the same time. So Cobra was probably enhanced by uh, a dumb <laughs> Yeah. And was this yeah, a yeah. GGTMC meetup or uh Sorry. GG no, yeah. Gentleman's got gentleman's got to midnight. Sounds, it sounds like a GGTMC meetup, but totally. No, it's just that I think what's what's interesting is, you know, that we we uh, obviously we know the way that culture is transmitted, you know, generally, but 
there's all these kind of happy accidents or there's accidental ways of uh, I think that are very interesting the, the way that people kind of assimilate music and culture in, in different ways it's just it's just purely by accident sometimes or sometimes you know it's like once they get that taste then you know that's it man they're 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 in they're in for mm -hmm. good they'll find uh, it for I like that analogy of Tim. I, I think that's a that's a really memorable one. The transistor radio uh, liking it to the internet. I think you're right there. Oh, big time. Well, here's a, here's one thing that you might not consider too. Right, is um, one of, one of the greatest uh, assets to British music or a lot of the European scene. It, it wouldn't have been. This is just my opinion, but if it hadn't been for the Merchant Marine, mm. you wouldn't Almost have had definitely. the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. That's right. Because, I mean, they were the guys that were you know, like uh, Jagger and uh, Keith and all those dudes were all running down to the docks and they were paying these uh, Merchant Marine guys astronomical prices for, you know, like old uh, Motown records and everything else and all the yeah. all the Chicago blues, right? And that's yeah. all these guys got their stuff. Well, and you go forward in time and you, you hear the stories about the uh, early days of punk rock where uh, a lot of those guys in San Francisco and London especially were collecting reggae records that were being brought back. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even, you know, like I, Maurice and I have been talking beforehand and I'm, you know, I told him about you know, I'm really, really a big fan of a lot of Australian music. And he said, well, how did you get access to that? And I said, well, I used to swap cassettes in the 80s with guys that, you know, I used to uh, go to record conventions and stuff and I'd pick up zines and there'd be all it, all it was is basically almost like, you know, 25 pages of people's classified ads yep. all around the world. And you'd write some guy and you'd give him your list of what you're looking for and he'd send you his list of what he was looking for and you'd all start swapping cassettes and or then you'd get into vinyl like people were looking for teenage head in canada i'd send them oh. you know the teenage head albums and then they'd send me you know like the birdman and the scientist stuff from australia and we you know we just start swapping so i but mean even even before the internet though this was this was you know there was a network of people that wanted what they wanted and they found a way to get it yeah that's right Tim it seemed it's so easy now with the internet but I and I was just talking to a friend here in Sydney I remember not too long ago you know I'd send um, this is like mid 80s when I started trading cassette tapes and VHS videos we'd um, you know I'd send like you couldn't afford to send an airmail so I'd send a I'd send a box to you know, say a trading friend in Sweden, and six months later, his box had arrived. Well, and, yeah. pro and probably like two years after, you know, Dylan had played a show, you'd get that show, and you'd go, oh, "Wow!" You'd go, "Wow!" I got this within two years of him playing it. Yeah. And you were, and you were really pleased with yourself, and now you're you're impatient if you haven't got it the next morning. Oh yeah, look, I remember on um, I know it was a Dylan Tree or Dylan Vine people mm. would be asking. The shows that had just finished half an hour before, and mm. I, I think the uh, the administrators of the site would you know, really take to task those people for that very reason. So you know, really, have we have we lost patience in in, in the you know genetics just within half <laughs> within yeah. a, one generation? I mean, yeah. yeah. But I think I think something's really been lost in the sense of you know this instantaneous um, you know possession of of what we what we 
we're looking for because you know i mean obviously you know we're you know we're all a bit older than you know the current generation but there was always something so satisfying about getting that package in the mail that you had to wait six weeks for getting wow. that record getting that like, record you know it was like waited. Um, it was like christmas every time that oh absolutely absolutely mm. but now it's like on the internet if somebody can send me something that you know it's like something that back in the day i would have had to wait 10 weeks for it i get it now and i'm just like so what i could give a shit you know yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me well, you know, that remi reminds me of uh, seeing Trent Reznor interviewed uh, probably a year, year and a half ago about the iPod and saying, you know, back in the day you would get something and you'd sit down and you'd listen to it and you'd experience and now it's, oh, I got 14,000 tracks on my uh, iPod or whatever. Mm. Right. Well, exactly. well that's, actually, that's actually a problem now because when I was a bit slower than most to go to digital and when I got my iPod, great. And I got, you know, I said, look, I'll get a big mother because I got a, you know, a big CD record cassette collection, but now I literally find, and, my, and I got a pretty good memory, but I literally find myself I can't get past just recently added because I can't remember, you know, everything I've bought this year. Right. You know, like you, know, like you, you literally got to carry a notebook around with you. So sometimes I feel like I'm defeated, and I just have the iPod on shuffle, and I go, Oh yeah, I bought that album in January, and I, and I never did play it or whatever. It's just almost. We're embarrassed by our riches now, whereas when you had to wait, you know, six weeks or 12 weeks for that parcel and it was, you know, and, and, and I used to trade with this guy in, um, in the Netherlands. He used to collect Dylan picture sleeves, which I seemed to be able to find in Sydney around about that era, early 80s. And he'd send me boxes of um, uh, TDK, SA, 90 minute tapes of, you know, Dylan shows from about two years before and you mm -hmm. thought, you know, it was like gold dust you had in your hands. Right. You know, it's funny too, like when you talk about, you know, shifting to digital, it, it's weird how things flip-flop. Like, I mean, well, I'm talking about, uh, there was a time when, you know, vinyl, some things were really hard to, to get a hold of. And then all of a sudden, once you got a hold of it, then all of a sudden they put it out on CD. Yeah. Like for, like for example, there was a, a Husker Day album, Everything Falls Apart, and I was looking forever for the vinyl back in the late 80s. And I was in Washington, D.C., and I finally got a hold of it, and I paid 50 bucks for the vinyl. And then a year later, Rhino Records puts out the CD. And I was just like, you son of a... But the <laughs> irony is, the joke's... No, but the joke's on me, because the thing is, in the long run, I was talking with a friend of mine, Al Quint, and Al was saying, you know what? He said... When they transferred it to CD, they totally screwed up the sound. So he says, you know, even though you paid more for the vinyl, he said, it, it, the vinyl is still superior in sound. And I said, I agree with you. Mm. I said, you know, the, the vinyl still, you know, reigns supreme. It still stands mm. out, you know. But it was just a whole thing about where, you know, you're in this mad pursuit of getting those 45s and getting those seven inches and getting those records you're like i finally got it you know you hit your holy grail and then about six months later and eh, it's coming out in cd it's like <laughs> i had a similar thing happen with my brother and the uh, angry samoans record back from samoa right we spent all, all summer looking for it and we finally found it at a store in east lansing called fbc and uh i had to talk him into buying it because it was a it wasn't the american issue it was a european issue 
And then, you know, two years later, you get the Unbox set, which is the complete recordings of the band come out right. on CD. So you mentioned Al Quint. Did he do a Suburban Voice zine? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. I remember that. Yeah, he's still yeah he's still around. He's still putting stuff out. But it's funny though. It's just you know how we we just talk about we wax poetic about you know all those seven inches and everything and it, you know and you figure oh man like I don't want to keep playing this stuff because you know they're collectibles and everything. So yeah, it's like you're thinking well okay you know do I am I am I willing to put up with the the lack of the quality of sound with the CD just to save my vinyl? Yeah okay I can do that. You know. I mean, <laughs> Well, I don't know. Like, before, go ahead. I would say before you jumped on, we were talking about I, I was going through the vinyl I bought recently, and it all came with either a CD or a download. And I've actually bought a couple seven inches that came with a download of the tracks. Right, and I think that's a smart thing to do because they know now that people, you know, they want to hold on to their vinyl and, and they they collect. And I mean, yeah. Well, I know. I think about it now with this um, World Record Day independent or independent store independent record store day and a whole bunch of artists are releasing singles only for you know, that purpose mm-hmm. right well there's a lot of bands now like uh, for example uh, Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks his band off it's like you know they, they put out their first uh, couple of uh, EPs and then they finally put out an album but it's like yep. they had a deal where they were say that you know if you buy all the EPs then you get a shirt with it you know you'll get everything all this other gear with it buttons and everything else and it's going back to the way it was. Oh, most yep. definitely. Mm. But it's going back to the way it used to be. Like, you remember Stiff Records, you know? If it wasn't Stiff, yeah. it wasn't worth, uh, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you used to get pins and you'd get posters. And I mean, and, and that's that's the thing, too, that I was having this discussion with somebody about um, my buddy, actually, that lives in Siem Reap in Cambodia, my friend Gary. Gary's huge music head like me and we we sat there and we cracked a couple of beers one afternoon and we just went down the rabbit hole the thing we were talking somebody somebody dropped something i heard something yeah i'm not sure anyway uh, he was he was talking about you know saying that it used to be where a recording was kind of complete from all aspects i mean like people recorded full albums you know and then there then there was the liner notes and then there was the lyrics and then there was the art and then there was everything that went with it whereas now because of you know the digital era and you know you know the 99 cent uh, single you know on amazon or itunes whatever that a lot of musicians aren't recording albums anymore they're recording singles mm. or they'll have they'll have maybe one or two great tracks on an album and then the rest of the album is just filler to prop up those two singles and no one's really looking at anything anymore as a complete entity you know well i guess it's become uh, i don't know maybe not self-fulfilling prophecy but it's uh giving the public what they want you know people lose yeah, a, 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 I mean, we had this discussion before you joined tim but uh basically uh, i guess in summary it, if um uh, People, you know, that record, uh, musicians who go out and uh, record whole albums find out that the new generation doesn't want them. They say we only want individual tracks, uh, and then if, as you know, what you say is so, they're only going to record a couple of really strong songs, and the rest are just filler. Then 
that justifies buying those two songs and it becomes I guess yeah self-fulfilling prophecy yeah well you know we, we showed you, you know, the, this, this new album did eight songs of shit and only two really good songs why should we buy a whole album so the market I, but the market you're saying that the market has to dictate I, I, I really don't agree with it I mean I, you know it is what it is I'm not, yeah, so, I'm not I, saying it has to but I'm, no, I'm no, saying that it, no, no, it, I, it, it does it, it occasionally is, it is yeah yeah I think it also depends on the kind of music you're talking about. One of the albums that that I got this year is the new Bouncing Souls record, and that's a cohesive cohesive album. And I I believe that one of the issues that came up with CDs is too many bands were pressured to put an hour, an hour and five minutes or whatever worth of music. Whereas if you go back, especially look at punk rock records, you know, the classics are clock in at 30, 35 minutes. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, you're you're right. When it comes, but when it comes to you know, like I mean, punk rock is is completely. I don't know. It, it's a different entity unto itself. Because I mean, I can think of bands like the New Bomb Turks, where mm-hmm. it was like you know, every single track that they would put out on those albums were just killer. And it was you know, all all killer, no filler. You know what I'm saying? It was just you know. At the same but, time, they didn't have the pressure of a major label saying we need we need two singles and don't worry about right. the rest of it and. We owe this guy a song, and this, you got to record that guy's song because we owe him a favor. Oh yeah. So I mean, oh, with yeah. those those independent bands, and that's you know looking like that's the independent music is starting to to not see the decline in sales that the, the uh, major label music is. That those guys could could do what they wanted much more easily. Yes, they have a less, smaller budget, smaller advertising budget. They're being uh, effectively shut out of radio, but they could still carry on and do what they wanted. Well, I, th- I think with technology today, though, you know, with, I mean, you know, with uh, GarageBand, you know, for the Mac and yeah. uh, all these all these uh, facilities that people have now, I mean, you can, you know, you don't need a label anymore. I mean, you can become your label, you know, you can sit in your, in your house and just say that the record label, blow it out your ass, you know, I'm not going to take a loan from you and wind up Oh, and you know, the rest of my life to you, I'm, I'm going to sit there and, and do what I want to do and do it at my own pace and, you know, do it the way I, you know, I can sit down, edit everything and just record the whole thing, you know, right right from my bedroom. Well, I remember having this conversation a few years ago with um, this local guitar player, singer-songwriter called Dave Steele. He used to be the lead guitar player for the first couple of albums of uh, Australian band Weddings, Parties, Anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And for the first three solo albums that he did they were on they were on Warner Brothers and um, then they let him go and then he just sort of for the next few years he, he just rammed right through and you know, made quite a bunch of uh, really fine albums independently and you know, I, I did I did an interview with him while I was you know, still studying at you know, the student radio station and he said you know how are you finding selling these albums and he said you know what I've sold maybe you know, a fraction of uh, the number of albums I might have sold through Warner Brothers because they had a big promotional deal but you know what I made a shitload more money because they took just about everything and everything that I sell you know, basically is, is you know, once I've paid off expenses is mine uh, so uh, I just I go to gigs people will buy albums and that's it it's, it's all mine it's a much much better deal and I'm not saying that you know it's all about the uh, the cheese but uh when you start making more money, it, it, it gives the artist incentive to create more art. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not, it, again, it's not 
strictly from the financial sense. I'm not saying it's all about, you know, all about money, but it's just that, well, they have you to know, put food on the table. Exactly, but when it gives you, it gives you also the money to, for example, to spend more money on the next recording, you know, or or to put more money into your art, you know, and to know and to know uh, and to have the option of doing it exactly the way you want to do it, as opposed to just having a studio saying, well, you know, uh, a label saying, well, we we got a studio for you, we got a session guy for you, and having them make all the options with the money. It, it allows you to take the money that you make and, and just do it exactly the way you want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, so like coming back to this issue though, it's, uh, it's the dual-edged sword, you know, with um, technology being uh, so cheap and so ubiquitous, anyone being able to record something. But now, I guess we also have the problem of having a glutton of uh, the uh, music out there for us to be able to listen to and you know, really in the end even I, I guess there's always been a lot of records that were pushed aside ignored by the radio but now you know, the, the general public and they still find okay I know that there's more out there too much too much I'm just going to bury my head and I'm not going to listen to that eventually like I guess you know, a lot of performers will find their audience but I think there's still probably going to be an awful lot more who are probably not going to get the number that they deserve. They might have something that's really wonderful uh, and well worth a lot of people listening to, but by virtue of the fact that, yeah, well, the bloke next door who's also got an Apple with a garage band and just having to know how to market in a cleverer way for someone's attention, it's, it's you know, becoming less about marketing of the money that, uh, that the big studios are able to provide just still more the, the general public thinking too much, too much can't handle it. Well, that's why, the general, that's why the general public needs to find their gatekeeper, needs to find that reviewer or that blogger or that podcast that, that has the same sensibility right. that they're going to then discover things via. I was going to say the technology, the one advantage of technology now is that, you know, all the uh, college radio stations and all the radio stations that used to be terrestrial and now... You know, you can get them anywhere around the world on the internet. Like, for example, you know, WFMU on the East Coast, and then there's a couple of really great uh, West Coast stations, you know, in the uh, North America. And I mean, there's a couple of BBC shows I always listen to once a week. You know, there's things from all over the world that you can pick up now through, you know, iTunes radio. And a lot of people don't even realize that, you know, that everyone just says, well, you know, streaming with podcasts, but there's more than podcasts. I mean, there's there's you know live radio that you can get through iTunes, and and it and there's a lot of support. There's a lot of support out there. It's just do, a matter of finding taking the think, initiative. Do we think? Uh, I guess in this age, like what you guys are touching on with the uh, accessibility technology and and the and the uh, yeah the greater accessibility, is are there these are they are there these teenagers in different parts of the world? They're going to be you know, the next. Is is there a Dylan? Is there a Dylan? Is there a kid like Dylan sitting in Minnesota? Is there a kid like Van Morrison, you know, sitting in Belfast? And and can they break through to the level that these guys did, or are we in an era because you know there isn't? I guess there's there's, there's less you know 10 million selling albums, or people won't. Are we going to have a lot of great artists, but not artists that get to the profile of you know those guys from the 
fifties or sixties. It's an interesting era. Well, I think I think that uh, it's probably a mistake to be looking for the next Dylan or the next Guns N' Roses or the next Nirvana mm. because mm. whatever it is that's going to come along and speak to the next generation, they might be influenced by those things, but they're going to have to have their own stamp on it. That's oh yeah, exactly. The bottom line. So. Are we going to see people that are going to sell that much? I don't think we're going to see the sales, but I think we will see people that have that cultural resonance. Yeah. And I think that each generation is going to have to adapt itself to the realities of its marketplace and its time. Right. And, you know, I, I think the way that you measure, you measure real talent, too, you know, is like, for example, you know, there, there's only going to be one, one Dylan. I mean, like that's, that's it. But I mean, I've seen, you know, everyone that's had that performer, those, that band that's played in their neck of the woods, that's just absolutely blown them right out of the water. And you're like, oh my God, these guys are so amazing. Or that guitar player is just, you know, guy blows my mind. And you know that, you know, they're never going to get be above and beyond because that's just, you know, it's a million and one shot. But but that doesn't take away from the fact that these people are incredibly talented, and that you know what they do is you know above your uh, normal run of the mill. You know, I mean, like there's those bands I've seen I've seen guys play the blues in Japan that would just blow your mind. But it, but but everyone's like, well, a Japanese blues artist, and it's like, yeah. But but then they're like, well, what albums has he has he made? Well, he, he hasn't. He just he, he's playing in Tokyo with this house band on a Saturday night. The guy's just good, you know. <laughs> so I mean, I think it's not it's not even so much about looking for the next platform. I think that like you know, Eric, like you're saying, you know, like the resonance, it's, it's it'll always come along and in different ways. You know, like they they may not never they may never gain notoriety on a national level. You're, even on a smaller level, but you know, I always see people play, and I'm just like, damn, man, like that guy, that guy's good, you know. And, and, and you can't ignore it, regardless of whether whether or not that person's going to wind up on the cover of Rolling Stone. And I think we, we also have to look at the fact that it's, you know, that the the labels look about look at sales in the short term, but you you know, when you look at who's still selling all these years later, and who's still being talked about, and who's still being listened to. And right. that's where you're going to find your real, you know, your real cultural resonance a lot of the time. Right. And I guess the um, the, the future musicians are hopefully the ones who break it big. It's it's amazing. Like you, you listen to what they do, and you sort of think, well, what's their cultural point of reference? What have they listened to? And you don't necessarily always pick it. And then you listen to interviews with them, and they say, oh man, you know, I used to go through my uh, parents' record collection, and they had. You know, I mean, okay, so there'll be the, the usual suspects, you know, your Dylans and your Zeppelins and, and your Deep Purples, you know, for, for the younger ones nowadays. But, you know, um, I was watching uh, in the last few days a bonus DVD that came with the CD that came out from um, uh, the singer Wally DeBacca, a.k.a. AKA Gautier. And um, <laughs> the, stuff he's, the stuff he's been listening to uh, that influenced, you know, his his uh, album, um, his, his latest album, uh, just came from some really unusual places. It shows him in the bonus DVD him going down to a little uh, op shop down down here on the Mornington Peninsula and buying uh, old 
records from the one dollar bill uh, you know uh, of music sung by Chaim Topol and uh, Demis Roussos and using their music for samples on on the on the album and you know this guy all of a sudden you know is number one around the world so um, I, I think that as long as there are songwriters out there who want to make something new but are not afraid to look back when doing it then really the the, the future of music is going to be safe oh yeah for sure for sure you know it's it's funny too because it, it it's just like you know a lot of it, it's 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 really it's really funny now like i mean i don't want to go back and, and and go back to the conversations you guys had you know in the beginning of the show but the one thing i want to say about snobbishness that was kind of funny where um i remember getting into the punk scene in the 80s and having you know like older friends brothers you know coming back from college and just laying cassettes on me with like you know like the butthole surfers when they started and the bad bad brains and minor thread and x and the germs and all that stuff and they was just like hey man check this out you might like this whereas now it's just like oh you don't know anything about guys you don't have the seven inch you don't have this you don't have that you know and they're ranking on everybody and you know whereas oh, but those people i'm sure they always existed though oh they've, sure sure they've been good communities yeah. but they've also been people like that right i mean i remember going to the record store in toronto like when we go on a field trip you know when uh middle school and high school and we ditch the teacher and we ditch the museum and the first thing we do is just save all the money that we had for six weeks because we knew we'd be going on a field trip and run right to the record store and then the, and then the guy sitting behind the counter would be like oh no, this isn't for you you know hey man if i if i sell you this album you know like you know, you can't come back with your mom in an hour and expect a refund. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. like seriously, like that's I what they you. said. You know? I remember those days. Yeah, and it was just like, no, man. Like, you know, like they'd, they'd be playing like rudimentary Peni or Crass or the Swans or some really noisy, like crazy thing. And I'd be like, hey, what's this? What's what? This, you're playing. <laughs> oh, no, 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 this isn't for you, you know? So you're right. You're right, Maurice. There was there were those guys that were always ranking. There was the stick in the ass record dudes. I mean, every, everybody had their own guy. But I think that in the past, though, there was a lot more kind of like passing the torch, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, like we we all kind of you know inherited our brothers and sis, older brothers and sisters' albums. You know, Excellent. where where not, where. Well, I was gonna say not not me. I was the one who broke loose my. Um, uh, my, well, one of my sisters, I guess, you know, had the folk music collection, but the other one was strictly classical. And when I started to listen to rock and roll, I was, oh, I was in a lot of trouble. I was going to say, it was actually my, my parents who didn't really like rock and roll, but they were, the, ironically, the ones who supported me wanting to break away, saying, you know, you've got to listen to what you've got to listen to. And my sisters were horrified, at least one was. Well, well, I go back to it when I was eight. Like I listened to my father's punk rock uh, vinyl. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was an artist by the name of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But literally, you're eight years old, and 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 you don't know. You, I mean, you haven't got any money. You don't know that. You don't know that there's this world out there that you can go and you know buy anything yourself. So right. I, 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 I don't know whether I had a good childhood or or an impoverished one. I, my father was a massive Sinatra fan. 
my mother had had things like you know, Peter, Paul and Mary live in concert. So I got you know my first taste of Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. and Yeah, uh, Peter, and, Paul but, and Mary live at Budokan. Yeah. <laughs> But um, and then and you go, oh, you know, and then then you know, years later, you're you're an adult yourself, and you go, yeah, that Frank Sinatra guy wasn't too bad, right? Yeah. Well, my dad, my dad had the best reaction because you know when I came home and I'd be playing like it was weird because back in the '80s, like I I was still into like you know Motorhead and uh, you know I was into like a lot of like the the British new uh, you know the uh, new wave of heavy metal a lot of that stuff but then I you know and then I kind of crossed over into a lot of the punk stuff and my father would be like you know I bought that stereo I can fire it out the goddamn window you know like this. <laughs> and then the funny thing was my brother he was more into list my younger brother was more into listening to you know like the Hoodoo Gurus and the Eurythmics and everything like that. Well, that all changed within about four or five months because I'd come home and I'd see my records all shifted and I'd say, well, what the hell? And he finds out that, you know, he's playing my records. Mm. So my fa- so I go down to my father and I said, hey, can you tell Sean to stop playing my records? And my father looks at me and he says, you mean I got to hear all this shit again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, and I remember that as long as I live. You mean I got to listen to all this shit again? <laughs> And, you know, and that was the first thing that crossed my mind the first time I ever got a job in a record store. You know, because people would come in and they'd be like, hey, can you play that album, man? And I'm like, what album? Oh, you know that album? And I'm like, oh, here we go again. You know, like, Nirvana's never mind. And I like the album, you know, great album. But, man, after hearing the people coming in and having you play that thing in and out, in and out, in and out, it was just, yeah, Exactly. So, um, what was I going to say? So, what what have you guys? Um, I was going to say, what has it uh, twenty twelve so far? What is really blowing you out of the water? Oh Jesus! I'll let you guys take that one first. Well, for me so far, it's been um, I really like the new Bouncing Souls a lot. That's mm-hmm. been the one that I've been listening to over and over. And uh, from th- this year, everything else I haven't really had a chance to explore very much. I can tell but you. I, I, you know, okay, no, go on. Sorry. I have my stack of LPs here that I swear I'm gonna gonna be exploring more. And you know, uh, it was mentioned that something about uh, the iPod and, and forgetting what you got earlier in the year. Yeah. Right. My solution to that was I made a playlist that is recently added with zero plays, and I limited it to 75 tracks. So every That's- time I play something new, it adds the the uh, the next oldest unplayed song. So eventually, if you keep playing all the new stuff, you're going to go back to the stuff you've missed from the year. Yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'm going to do nice. that. Nice, nice, nice. Because I've what got about, lost. I've got lost in my iPod. Yeah. What about you, John? What have you heard this year that's really uh, well? Um, we we I didn't mention it earlier, but a guy that um, I guess one of my um, Pet themes, you know, mature artists that can still be vital. Tom Russell. Oh yeah. He released oh, yeah. An, released an album called Masabi, which was essentially it was an album about. Well, I think it was. I think it's about you know his his childhood heroes and how you know how many of his heroes you know have fallen. Uh, he's uh, backed by uh, Calexico on a couple of tracks, 
And he's a guy that, that uh, I've sort of rediscovered. I really liked, he did an album, uh, not your typical musical album, it was basically a, um, I guess, a, a mini history lesson uh, in 2005 called Hot Walker. And it was right. about, it was about, uh, it, was, it was called, I think it was subtitled something like um, A Letter to Charles Bukowski and, 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 and uh, Gone America. Now, I might have got that wrong, but it was basically, you know, he talked about Lenny Bruce, about Bukowski, who uh, Tom Russell evidently corresponded with the last few years of Bukowski's life, um, with, a, with this great uh, tough guy, circus midget uh, actor, whose name just escapes me. But yeah, just like, just rediscovered an artist I probably filled around with about 10 years ago. and. You know, he's pushing, I guess, early 60s, but I just thought it was a really good album. Um, and I was just telling the guys earlier, I, I found this Irish guy. I was, went on a family holiday to Ireland that um, I think's got a lot of potential, Damien Dempsey. Mm-hmm. Kind of folk, uh, hard to describe his music. It might have elements of hip hop and uh, God forbid, but maybe not God forbid, a little bit of rap sort of approach. But he sings in a very, very strong Dublin accent and it's got some interesting instrumentation going. Huh. Uh, and, a, and a guy from Chicago that I, maybe Tim and Eric know, and I've, I've never really heard of him, called Michael McDermott. No. Sounds familiar, but I can't place it. Um, I think he's been around since the early 90s and um, I seem to be um, uh, getting his albums. Uh, they seem to be stacking up. He's he's probably released. He's probably in the vicinity of about you know nine or ten studio albums, and very good songwriter. Um, he's got fans as diverse as Stephen King, who's you know gone out on a limb and said he's possibly the greatest uh, unknown songwriter of the last twenty years. Now I'm only very early into checking him out, but he seems pretty good. Um, I've gone back a bit. Uh, I've got a lot of time for artists that have been in big bands but can hopefully carve a you know, reasonably successful solo career and I like um, re-listen to a bit of Paul Westerberg. Oh yeah. Shoecane uh, Gratification, I just love that album and yeah. I guess I'm bemoaning that Paul's been, um, you know, he's, he hasn't released anything I think almost since that album and has been basically not even performing live. It's funny because actually one of the top five concerts that I ever saw, I, I saw the replacements and probably about three dates, four dates before they broke up. They were actually uh, touring with Tom Petty. Yeah. They were opening up, opening up for Petty, the Full Moon Fever tour. Mm. And they played in Toronto at this uh, theme park, Canada's Wonderland, like our kind of big amusement park. Yeah. And w- when they came out, it was really sad because it was almost like a spinal tap moment because there was a huge amphitheater and there was only 10 of us that were standing right at the front of the stage just to see the replacements. And the whole other rest of the place was empty. Mm. And, then, and then they were telling us, they're saying, well, you guys have to sit down because other people can't see. And we're like, who? There's nobody else here. There's just us, you know. <laughs> and, then, and they were all smashed. And it was like Paul was playing bass and Tommy was playing guitar. And then my friend in the crowd uh, threw his shirt at Paul and Paul took off his shirt and gave it to my buddy in the crowd and they swapped shirts and they were just doing all kiss covers and they did uh, mm-hmm. you know another girl another planet and they were and they're all just completely smashed like just yeah. you know you, and you could just see them imploding you know no I and, believe that like a, a the typical replacements 
well, there was no such thing. You either you either lucked out, and you probably saw the best show you were ever going to see, or, yeah. or the worst show you were ever going to see. Right. But they were. If there was any band that could ever take it as far off the rails, it was them, and bring yeah. it back again. Like uh, you know, and you see them. I, I saw them a couple of times actually. I saw them with Please to Meet Me tour, and it was just kind of like you know, you're thinking, oh man, these guys are done. Like you know, they they're really so sloppy. It was fun. But you're thinking, you know, they can't keep it up like that. And they did for a long time, or at least mm. they tried to, you know. They're almost like a, um, I guess, a Midwestern version of the Faces, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, I mean, you know, like there, and there were elements of the Who in the replacements, too, I found. Like yeah, big exactly. Elements. Oh, and, yeah. And I, just, I just don't think Paul gets enough um, props. I just think, you know, what he did post-replacements, even though he probably hasn't kept it up, you know, the last half decade and a bit. I think one of the you know one of the better songwriters to um, come come around the last twenty years or so. Oh yeah, because that that was what made the replacements. It wasn't the fact that you know it was the raunchiness and you know and just the fast loud rules. It was just the fact that his songs were so goddamn catchy because yeah. it was almost like like you know like, there isn't a you know it's no coincidence that he wrote that song Alex Chilton because I mean mm-hmm. you know with the box tops. That's right. You know, I mean, he was so just enamored with, you know, a great two-minute pop song, you know. Mm. Although, as, as um, the discussion that I had in a previous podcast with Justin Bozong, uh, I think he's convinced that the song should have actually been called Chris Bell. Um, he, he, he sort of he makes the, uh, states the case that the real genius was uh, Chris Bell rather than Alex Chilton. And certainly listening to number one record, yeah. a, 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 a strong case could be made for that. But there's no sure, sure, sure. That, that they both uh, contributed a lot. Uh, I picked up time. a nice um, remastered edition of um, Chris Bell's I Am The Cosmos earlier oh, this year. Nice. Was it, is that the, 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 the double album? Yeah, really nice. Edition? Really nice. Fantastic. Great. You know what's really funny is I saw an interview with Westerberg once and they were asking him, you know, well, you know, who, who do you really listen to or, you know, when you sit down to write, right? Mm. And and he's just like, oh, I can give you a ton of names and blah, 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 but I'm not going to. So, you know, if you don't know who Ian Hunter is, forget about it, you know? <laughs> and, and I just thought, Ian Hunter, okay, yeah, I can see that now completely, you know? But, he, you know, but he was a guy that definitely did his homework. He was a guy that definitely did his homework. He knew the, the sounds that really caught his ear and you know Look, sure. I, like, I like the fact that he was able to write songs that were either um, uh, rocking out uh, just really dirty balls to the wall rock yeah. or a song that was going to absolutely make you cry into your beer mm. I mean I think mm. Destroy him. Sky Skyways or, Skyway um, here comes a regular uh, and, yeah. Yep. Uh, oh, yeah that's um, the one that kills me oh, what, uh, and my, that's in the dial yeah, yeah ache, uh, ache in the bee and oh, my, my absolute favorite, um, 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 uh, uh, Sadly Beautiful. Oh, yeah. I, I just, the, the hairs on the back of my neck go up every time I hear that song. So Sky, Skyway is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, think, I think every every guy who picks up an acoustic guitar and wants to learn how to, how to play, so right, learn how to play this song. You play that song, you can keep on going. You don't learn that song, you're not with it. I guess I have to be the obvious one here and say I, I think Bastards of Young is the theme song to me at least for Generation X. I absolutely love that song. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Greatest video ever too. That, that, was, that, was that the one just at the speaker? When he, yeah, when he kicks in the speaker at the yeah. end with this, and he puts on the record and you just see the feet sticking over the side of the bed and he just goes and hoofs in the speaker. That, that's it. That's great. You know. <laughs>
But no, um, like, I mean, I think the replacements, though, for me, you know, I got lucky because, like... They named an album after you. Well, yeah, they named an album after me. Well, that, that took a lot of doing, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of bribery, but... No, but the three ba- three bands that really, for me, in the 80s, and you might, you know, of course, you'll nod at the first two, but the third one, you, you might wonder about, but uh, the replacements, Husker Du and Soul Asylum. Mm. Ah, because, during Minnesota. Oh, yeah. But early, early Soul Asylum, like, when they were live, holy shit, yeah. they were a great band. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking, like, the later Runaway Train stuff. I'm talking about the first couple of albums that they put out. And they were they were phenomenal, and, and they used to come up to Canada and they'd play with you know they'd bring up a couple of uh, the lesser known uh, mini bands like Skunk and uh, Run Westy Run, uh, a couple of those other uh, I forget who else, but anyway, uh, you know they, those were the trinity for me though. Husker Du that I got to see, replacements that I got to see, and Soul Asylum that I got to see. So my my question is. Uh, so I'm, I grew up in Ann Arbor, but I actually lived in Minnesota for five years. Right. And uh, I have a very good friends there, one of whom was in a metal band, metal punk band in the 80s and still playing today. They would go see all that stuff. Do you what feel that... Uh, I'm sorry? What band? Called Impaler. Oh, yeah. I remember those guys. Okay, yeah. Great yeah. guys. But so basically you're growing up south of Toronto, which is Canada, but it's still uh, Rust Belt, Blue yeah. Collar kind of people with, with some money to get their kids some music lessons or whatever. I've always felt that one of the reasons I identify with the Stooges and the Five is not only because they're coming from where I came from, but also because the mentality and the, the culture of the area is recognizable to me. And I think from Minneapolis down through Chicago, Wisconsin, over through Michigan, upper uh, Ohio, into uh, Pennsylvania, New York State, and across the bottom of Canada, I think there's a very similar kind of thing going on and it would make sense to me that you would identify with the Minneapolis bands. Oh totally. Like and it was just you know the the thing was too is like I, I had my favorite, you know, Texas bands, you know, like yeah. I mean the Dick the Dicks and the Big Boys and you know the surfers and all that. and then I had the West Coast thing, but I don't know, there was something about Minneapolis because it was like and even later on with Infinamine Reptile with the cows and you know, all that stuff that came out later on. But no, I don't know. It was it was just that for me, you know, it it was music first with all those bands. And I'm and I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of the stuff that went on anywhere else was a shtick. But but to me it was like it spoke to me. I mean like when you know when I listen to Zen Arcade, Husker do Zen Arcade, to me that was like my Tommy. You know, like or Quadrophenia, you know, like that was that was my concept album, you know, and you know, and the replacements too. It was I mean, when you saw those guys, you know, and Bob Stinson looking like a bum, and Tommy mm-hmm. looking like, you know, like some kid that would just got finished the shift at McDonald's, you know, and he was only 13 years old or 14 years old when he started to play. I mean, like, and the, you know, or even Husker Du. I mean, like the three of them, it was just like, what's wrong with this picture here? These guys don't look like a band, but they were like one of the best, you know, but it wasn't about image at all. It wasn't about, you know, it was just strictly about playing the music. And, and they, you know, it was about the craft, and that—that's what really got me. And that's and why those was, records stand the test of time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure, without a doubt, without a doubt. So, um, I—it's funny because I have a question for you guys. 
Whenever you travel or you know you're going a fair distance, is there any certain music that you feel like you have to take with you? I've got an answer for that. Every time we have a family trip, and yeah. certainly, John, you'll appreciate this because this mm. is um, courtesy of our good friend, Mr. Leaper. Um, I know what you're going to say, Morris. Oh, uh, yeah? What is it? Rain, rain and blood. No. <laughs> no. Uh, I, know, I know what you're about to say, Morris. You do. Uh, certain, yeah. Yes. Uh, a, a, a certain DJ. A, a certain radio announcer who I believe recorded a record or two in his own right. Um, there was the uh, uh, Bob Dylan Theme Time Radio Hour program. Um, a, 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 a trader in, um, in uh, Scotland, uh, John Leeper, who I'm trying to lure onto the show to uh, talk about Richmond Fontaine. John, if you're listening... You know you want to. You know you want to talk about it. Um, but he sent me every single damn show of uh, Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour, and it seems every time we go on a long family trip, because there's you know, the humour and what Dylan talks about, and the diversity of music there alone means I just I don't take have to take anything else. I take that sachet full of all the Theme Time Radio Hour programs, and we're covered. It doesn't matter, you know. I, and we try to guess, all right, I'm going to put this uh, CD in, and uh, my kids will say, oh, what's the theme? So I'll see if you can you know, guess from uh, the opening words or what it's going to be. And um, yeah, we have a lot of fun with that. So yeah, I always take the theme from Radio Hour on the long trip. For me, yeah. Yeah, for me, uh, well, I have my iPod now, and I can play that in the car, so I just fill it up and make a playlist. But uh, for me, the, the big bands that, that I always bring that I love are actually fairly obscure uh, one of them is uh i talked about on the show previously a uh, legal weapon from la absolutely oh, love yeah. that band. the other one is uh from canada from calgary uh the forbidden dimension nice my, one of my all-time favorite bands hopefully oh, yeah. going to see them in october uh my brother and i actually put out one of their cds i mean i just love their tom stuff tom bagley the main guy oh, yeah tom, tom's a good friend with my brother yeah yeah okay cool. yeah. he's been around for years Oh yeah, go back to Color Me Psycho. I mean, that stuff is yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then the other band is uh, another friends, other friends that we've put out a record by uh, from upstate New York. They were first New Math, and then they became Jet Blackberries. And they've done a band called the Atomic Swindlers, and now they're on some other stuff. But uh, their music, I always bring along, and I just because no matter what the mood I'm in, there's something in their catalog that's going to going to be listenable to me. Right. So those are three big ones. John? I think for me, um, well, yeah, this this trip, again, probably like what Eric alluded to, it was kind of too easy. I just brought the iPod, so I had, you know, 20,000 songs. But, yeah, and and again, probably too much. But the last trip we had on, I guess, pre my iPod year, and it's probably been a theme, and and it's sort of a weird one, but I'll tend to take, I've got a pretty big, I had a big period, I suppose, in the late 90s, early part of last decade, trying to collect every single solo project of the members of the band. So right. I've, got some, I've got some pretty obscure things, you know, Garth Hudson playing in a cafe in Woodstock. So I'll tend to have solo Rick Danko shows from the 90s. I really liked, uh, even like his, even as his great voice deteriorated, his ability to phrase uh, compensated. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess solo the band, not necessarily the band from their heyday, but no. the, I guess the the guys when they were struggling with their own mortality and 
And well, that album that Levon did, Dirt Farmer, I love that. Brilliant, album. brilliant, brilliant oh, stuff. God. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't got hold of that, but that's that's worth it. It's a great album, Morris, and oh. and an electric dirt. Yep, electric dirt's incredible too. Yeah. Like Levon, Levon, man, when that guy passed, that really left a hole in my heart because oh, of yeah. me. You know, because all those guys, like I mean, like the band was up from around my neck of the woods, like Yo, actually right. Woodstock, Ontario. Yeah, and they were all. Yep, Ronnie Hawkins was the one who got them started, and then, you yep. know, like I mean. I've got bootlegs of the Hawk I've with the young young Robbie here. Robertson, and uh, yeah, it's it's amazing stuff. I got one from um, Tim from '64, I think it is, Port Dover, up that neck of the yeah. woods. Yeah, well, Port, Port Dover is right. Actually, that's where we used to go and get hot dogs all the time on Lake Erie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, th I thought it wasn't far from you. So yeah, they're just my they're my traveling um, companions. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's funny. You're going to laugh because, like, whenever I fly, uh, I don't sleep on planes just because uh, the altitude messes up my ears. So I'm usually, uh, I knock myself out with a couple of uh, doubles and, uh, I, yeah, it's music. And I've always got uh, this hippie chick years ago. She turned me on to this album, uh, Richie Havens, Live at the Cellar Door. Okay. And... It's so laid back, and it's just the greatest thing to put on when you want to sleep. Because it's, and I'm not saying it's boring, I'm just saying that it's so, it just totally mellows you right out. And it's just so subdued, but it's it's fantastic, you know. But it's like, you know, when you get up in the morning and you're hungover, it's something you can put on and it's not going to totally cave your head in, you know what I mean? And Or, or else you sit on the beach and it's something you can put on and it's not going to really just piss everybody off you know it, it's just it, it i don't know it's like an, it's like all-purpose music right mm. the, the other thing that i listen to a lot that i always carry with me and this is going to totally sound like uh, the big lebowski but i've always got to carry some credence with me whenever i travel very nice very nice yeah. what, what did uh, dan Aykroyd say in uh in the twilight zone oh was it dan? someone said i love creed Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When they're in the ambulance, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it's oh, the no, kind it's of John, John, John Lithgow. Sorry, John Lithgow. Right, 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 right. But um, no, like when you're standing in line, you're standing in line through immigration, or you're just like, you know, you're waiting for a plane, and it's just like, you know, you're getting pissed off, and it's just like, all right, man, you know, I'm about to get mad here. Nope, gotta put on some credence. <laughs> I got a, I got a, uh, a workmate who. Um, says whenever he's feeling like in a down mood he just goes over to this stereo and puts on ramble tamble and right. that's it you cannot be in a bad mood or in a sad mood after listening to that song and on the other spectrum i uh, i always carry uh, motorhead live at hammersmith oh that's very awesome. nice very nice yeah now are you a hawkwind fan at all oh totally totally i mean well like i mean masters of the universe all of yeah. that big time big time and you know yeah. it's so it's so funny too because uh, this this is an interesting thing that I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but a, a, a music travel story that I'll tell you about is uh, I went over to Tokyo. I flew over from here in 2009, and I went over to see a reunion of uh, Killing Joke, and okay. it was the original 25th anniversary. Like the original lineup hadn't played in 25 years, so I said, you know, I got to go and see these guys. So I go there and I had the whole day to blow in Tokyo and I'd never been to Japan before. So I thought it was, you know, kind of a trip. Yeah. And I went, I decided to go to Tokyo Tower. 
So when I'm in Tokyo Tower, they said, well, you know, do you just want to go up in the tower or do you want to visit the wax museum? And I figured, well, I've got an hour to burn or whatever, two hours, I'll go and visit the wax museum. So I go inside and I go through and they've got the typical, you know, Marilyn Monroe's, the Clint Eastwood's and the Last Supper mm -hmm. and the Pope. And you get around the corner and I'm like, what the hell? And I see a sign and it says, uh, Fathers of Progressive Rock. Oh. And the next thing you know, I see these wax figures of Deep Purple, oh. you know, Richard Blackmore, Frank Zappa, the guys from Cannes, the guys from Noi, uh, Robert Fripp, uh, uh, Manuel Gotsring from uh, Asherah Temple, mm -hmm. like all, all the prog guys. These were wax figures with every single piece of vinyl or music or music ephemera that they ever released behind them. Wow. And I was, I'm just like, what the hell? Like, what is this doing here in Tokyo Tower, right? This is just insane. So was it curated locally or, or was it? A yeah, well, what it was, was the owner, the owner of all this stuff was a private collection. And he was this, you know, like multi-millionaire philanthropist dude. And uh, he had actually had all these figures made in England and all the vinyl and all the, the, the uh, press clippings and the, the photographs and everything were all his personal collection. And the guy wanted to open a museum in Japan, but he didn't know where, so he found a space in Tokyo Tower, and that's where he did it. But it, but it's bizarre, man. Like, you, and I, I walked through for like two and a half hours just looking at all the stuff they had up on the walls, and, and they got signs everywhere, no photographs, no photographs. I'm like, the hell with that, man. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> camera, taking pictures everywhere, right? And it was just such a trip, and it was just such a treat because, you know, and then they actually had photographs of the real people. Like they had photographs of the guys from Cannes visiting Japan, standing beside their wax figures. They had a photograph of Richie Blackmore standing beside his wax figure. And and I mean, I thought it was brilliant—a rock and roll wax museum—and nobody's ever done it. And Eric, you know the old joke about the Stooges wax museum, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, yes, I, do. I don't yeah, tell me. So, well, oh, it's it, it's in Ann Arbor. When we always say that there, there's nothing. There's no recognition of the Stooges, except there's the wax museum that's in the basement somewhere. <laughs> and so rock and roll tourists will once in a while show up and say, where's the Stooges wax museum? And we'll all kind of laugh. <laughs> I mean, that's what somebody, you know, but, but somebody should do a rock and roll wax museum, man. That would yeah. be, be brilliant. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I say Ann Arbor needs to do the uh, birthplace of punk museum because I mean, or one of the birthplaces, because we have the Stooges and the Five and- Oh yeah. All these other bands coming coming out of here and through here, and then you get in the '80s and you got the Necros and you got oh yeah, uh, you know, it's all of all of that stuff. Going on. Oh yeah, just, for sure. Just as a bit of a digression, I know that a few years ago um, we had uh, when there was a big MC5 reunion and they made it to Australia, uh, and at the same time, I know that one of the guitar players who they'd recruited for the US tour was Marshall Crenshaw, who I'm a huge nut for. Mm -hmm. um, he came to Australia. It was just purely coincidental. Um, he played with the Five? That's he bizarre. Played, he played with the Five. Well, he's a huge MC5 fan. He's a Detroit guy. He's a Detroit yeah, guy. Yeah, I knew he was. I knew he was, but I no. just I just couldn't picture him playing with MC5. No, no, he, he, no he, he, look, you know, uh, Marshall is like a, a, an encyclopedic. He's a... He, knows his rock he loves it. he's so um uh completely 
all over the shop with uh, with what he's listened to. So no, he was a huge MC5 fan, and they'd invited him to go and play on the US tour. So you know, he right. left the tour. That was sort of like having, I think, rotating guests. But yeah. um, right. he came, they, they, they were in Melbourne, and he was in Melbourne about the same time. So you know, he, they were doing a show, and he was just there to see them. And they say, hey, hey, everyone, we got Marshall Crenshaw in the audience, and no one really knew who he was but they you know, gave him a big cheer anyway and, and then you know two nights later he goes and does his own solo acoustic gig here in melbourne and and you know it was just absolutely wonderful so that's wild that's wild no i knew wayne had uh, evan dando touring yeah. with him and i thought that was bizarre but i guess you know because that guy was a bit of a basket case but uh yeah but it, it, i guess it turned out all right you know yeah you know it, it's funny because you know Friends of mine had actually met Rob Tyner, and they were pretty Ooh. tight with Rob. And you know, and we've you know talked to Dennis Thompson before, and you know, and those guys were all like, and it was so funny because it was just like, yeah, we did what we did, you know, but they never really lorded it over anybody, you know. And like, no, they, you know, growing up here, there was there was very little talk of, in the eighties. I never heard any scuttle about about the Stooges of the Five nope. into the nineties. Nothing. And then I find out that, you know, I went to high school with John Sinclair's daughter and Scott Ashton's stepdaughter. And, you know, yeah, Ron yeah. Ashton lived like three blocks from me. And, yeah. you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, what? You know, how did this happen right under my nose? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and that's the thing, too, you know, that uh, always pissed me off and that I always got into this eternal argument with friends where I said, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as far as I'm concerned, should have been in Detroit. Oh, yeah. Barton. That's it. That's it. Because And the only reason that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland is because of Alan Freed, because of him coining the phrase rock and roll in Cleveland. Right. That's it. Right. But, you know, uh, Morris, the funny thing with Detroit right now is, is Detroit is kind of like, uh, I call it the Lebanon of the East. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's... Uh, the city's seen better days, and it's it's pretty rough oh, yeah. and tumble now. It's it's not it's not anything of what it used to be. But the thing is, is right now, it would you wouldn't hear some guy say, "Honey, put all the kids in the station wagon. We're going to Detroit to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame." Ain't gonna happen, you know. <laughs> Cleveland, oh hell yeah, Cle- Cleveland, yeah. so clean cut, man. In Cleveland, no problem. But taking the kids to Detroit, uh, uh-uh, ain't gonna happen, man. No, but Detroit's got sound like the funny thing about Detroit is to me is it's like an elephant's graveyard where all the bones are still remaining. I mean, like you can drive down Woodward Boulevard, which is the main strip in Detroit, and they don't knock buildings down. They just board them up. So, I mean, like, you know, there's so many places where, you know, there used to be clubs or there used to be theaters and there used to be like the ballroom. You know, and all those yep. places where so, they're, so, they're so like the Motown studios. Are they like a a, a museum of sort? Or yeah, there, there is a Motown museum. Right. I I haven't been there, but my brother took actually a friend of ours from Australia there when he was in town. Okay. But it's just it's just that a lot of Detroit though, like it, you know, it it it's weird. Detroit reminds me of drive-ins. What happened to drive-ins? You see drive-ins now and they kind of break your heart, you know, because you can think about, look back and you can imagine what they once were and, you know, and just, you know, how alive they were and, you know, how much, how much enjoyment people got out of them, you know, but now you look at it and it's like, oh man, you know, it's it's going back to nature. 
Right. <laughs> it is. There's all these empty lots and yeah. it, yeah. Or they're building shopping centers on them. Actually, I, no. I, I, well, I know, I know here a lot of the, um, the old, dry, I mean, Melbourne, back when I was a kid, had, uh, I, I mean, there were two major cinema chains and they both had about 10 to 15 double screens around Melbourne alone, you know, so 30, 40 drive-ins around Melbourne. Now we've got, we're still fortunate enough to say that we have two. Um, one just sort of like on the, you know, just a little bit outside Melbourne, one on the northern side. Um, so they're there more as ghost towns, but, you know, they are still used more as a, a novelty or anything. But um, I, I'll make a little diversion as long as we're talking about drive-ins. It just, I, I tended to get all, you know, melancholic and sort of just remembering how good it used to be uh, with, with regards to getting very sentimental when, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I take it you guys would have seen the um, the documentary uh, Not Quite Hollywood about Oh yeah, yeah. So the, you know, the opening scene of the film has um, uh, an old an old sort of thing that they would show on the screen so welcome to the drive-in don't forget it, to uh buy your popcorn speaker and oh my god i hadn't seen that since you know since i was a yeah, child yeah. And, oh right gosh. so well there was uh there was a whole thing about music in the drive-in too like i mean i got lucky i saw rock and roll high school at the drive-in oh wow that would have been that, that was a blast and there was a, it was a it was a triple bill, and it was a dust till dawn, and it was a Phantom of the Paradise, oh. Tommy, and Rock and Roll High School. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and it was just you know that was that was amazing, man. I mean, you know, the, are you still there, John? I'm still here. All right, man. You did you guys you guys didn't have drive-ins in England, did you? John, um, John's in Sydney. Oh, John's in Sydney. Sorry, I thought you were. Oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. That's okay. Hey, John, you no, didn't have no, drive-ins in Sydney, did you? We did. Oh, good. I've got a childhood memory of. Um, I've got to talk. Can you guys hear me? I'm just talking a bit yeah, soft absolutely. because yes. I've got a few people in bed, but uh, this is a pretty cool memory. We're actually probably going to have to wind this up in the next five minutes or so. Yeah, it's sure. school, yeah. Right? Stowing away in the car with my parents. And I didn't know what I was seeing, but I, you know, a couple of years later, I realised I, I was pretty young, seeing this guy come into town on a um, donkey that was, you know, he, he was almost too tall for. We went to the drive-in to see um, one of the early um, Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. I think it was for a few dollars more. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my greatest um, childhood memories. It would have been probably late '60s in Australia because. Back then, we'd probably get a movie, um, you know, probably at least 10 years after it was released. Nice. Not quite, but... I'm trying to think. I think the first movie I ever saw to drive in, uh, was it 1974, whatever, the Planet of the Apes film was out that year, Conquest or... Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Or Battle for, I don't remember. But yeah, that was, yeah. I think, the, the first time. And I just absolutely fell in love with the experience. But yeah. I, I think it's sort of... Unfortunately, with the two drive-ins that are left... Here, here in Melbourne, anyway. Um, well, certainly with one of them, anyway. They, there was uh, a whole thing of nostalgia. It's like you know, well, we're not just the one that's left and going to going to show movies. We're going to let you know that we're the last one left. So <laughs> when you come into the uh, the, the um, area to purchase your food, 
uh, we're going to have a couple of old Bobby Soxes, and I mean like people you know, in their uh, late fifties, early sixties, who are going to be dressed as if they were you know seventeen, eighteen back in the fifties, and, and right. dancing to you know some tunes on the jukebox, and it just. I'm desperately trying to look the other way. <laughs> you know, what's really oh. funny was uh, I uh, I got to actually talk to Brian Trenchard Smith mm. and um, when he was in Toronto. And the funny thing was, as I told him, I got to see a film that he did called Dead End Drive-In. Yep. I got it. to see it at the drive-in. Oh, yeah, so, nice. and what's it. funny about the movie is that, you know, the movie takes place at the drive-in. Yeah. So they're they're watching a movie on the big screen in the movie yeah so i'm, I'm at the drive-in watching a movie about a drive-in <laughs> while they're sitting there watching movies at the track yeah what was he like i mean he, like, from what he's i saw he's just like, a straight up guy he's, he's, just a he's straight like up a guy. really lovely guy but the... oh he is he's awesome he's just like hey oh, hello how are you how are you doing you know like he's just no he's just he just enjoys it he enjoys the craft he enjoys what he does and yeah yeah but it was just so really funny how he was even just kind of amused that uh, how many of his films actually made it to Canada, mm. you know? Because we we used to get a lot of uh, the B stuff in the '80s. Well, our shopping malls, like they used to play stuff when I was, you know, just maybe 15, 16, 17. They used to play like Flesh Gordon at the shopping mall, or they'd play like you know Maniac. Or so did you say this- fl- Flesh or Flesh? Flesh, all right, good. flash yeah. and flesh, both of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just funny that there was a lot of stuff that we used to get in Canada that they wouldn't generally. Uh, you you wouldn't get it these days. There's no way you'd see any of that stuff on the big screen anymore. Yeah. Ain't gonna happen. Yeah. All right, look, I know, we, I'm gonna call this to a bit of an abrupt end. It's um, it, it's uh, about oh, nearly twenty past twelve on on a school day. So right, uh, I think we're um, I, I think. John, are you flaking it? No, I'm I'm okay, but I've I've had my wife come out and tell me to keep it down, so I must be talking Uh-oh. loud already. Uh-oh. Got words. We're, yeah. we're not we're not going to be the sowers of of uh, domestic discord on this show. No, so uh, so look, I, I really just want to say thanks to all of you guys. Um, really, this particular episode was uh, born of circumstances, but I I think what it's gone and shown me is that I think once every few episodes I want to do something like this just shooting the shit because it's been I've had an absolute brilliant time just same thing Chris Uh, thank you very much for having us man oh man We'll we'll, um, we'll definitely do something like this uh, probably a couple of months down the track but uh, each one of you is um already committed to a uh, a love that album episode proper over the next uh few weeks or so um so Mm -hmm. um so do your research work out your words and uh i look forward to uh speaking uh, to you all very shortly thanks for any of you out there who've uh, been listening i won't be doing the usual sort of salutations to the other programs i'll leave that to uh, the next uh regular format show but thanks once again for listening and um if uh you want to send any feedback send it to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or join the Love That Album Facebook page and just start up a conversation like we've been doing tonight. Uh, it's been a blast. So, um, yeah, once again, been a thanks, pleasure, guys. guys. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Morris. Yep. And ni- nice meeting you, Eric, and nice meeting you, Tim. Yeah, oh, good likewise, John. I'm going to check out. I'm going to check out um, Man or Astronaut. Man or uh, Astroman. Uh, Man or Definitely. Astroman. Um, I, I posted it to uh, Mar- Marisa's page. Great. So, uh, actually, so you're, you've uh, um, you got a Facebook account there, John? I have. All right. Well, I'll, I'll search. I'll search you out and post those yeah. links to you. So, 
All right. All anyway, right. thanks very much, guys. And uh, yeah. we'll see you in another fortnight with another episode of Love That Album. Hopefully, VK Lynn will be uh, feeling a lot better and uh, we'll be discussing something in a couple of weeks. Okay. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Yep. See you guys. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.